up, everybody? Welcome back to Actually Podcast. This is rocking. Okay, we're working. We're rolling on live on YouTube. They see me rolling. They hating. They hating. Why are they always hating? Just because I'm riding dirt. Yo, so how's everybody doing out there? Hope y'all are well. I'm gonna open up the chats. On the various places, so if you guys want to say hi, if you have any questions, feel free to try and get a word in. I do my best to try and catch you. I have us multi-streaming, uh, lo- multiple locations right now. We're on Facebook. We are on Twitch. We are rocking on YouTube. And tonight we are going to be watching part four of John Verbeke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. we got that set up right here for you guys. Here it is indeed. Check the title. Check the name. Look it up. If you enjoy this, we encourage you to check it out and catch on up with the show. I highly recommend you can go in and you can change the speed, playback speed. You can speed it up. You can probably get away with 201.75 or wherever's comfortable and you can still follow everything and you can catch right up with the show. Very quickly. And this quickly. is a 50 lecture series, and we are now getting into Socrates and the quest for wisdom. How are you feeling tonight, DJ? I'm feeling good. Feeling good. Blinded by the lights. But, Blinded uh, by the lights. You can see lights. us. I guess that's important. Yeah, yeah. You got to do it. You know, you got to do the things to uh, make the visual decent for the viewers. And, you know, this is what we're working with. We're going to. One day graduate into higher quality cameras and microphones and lighting. 
No, until you grow. We are growing as we grow, indeed. So, um, should we sum up what we did last episode? Um, he does a pretty good job summing that up, so you might want to jump right into it. Just kind of jump right into yeah. it, then, um, I guess, yeah. Maybe after a summation, if something pops out uh, that we remember, uh, we'll stop for that. But uh, Sounds like a plan. He does a really good job summing up the, the last time round, brief overview. Yeah. Nice little, like, you know, the phrases he uses helps bring your mind back to the point in time that, like, when you were listening to the video. Mm-hmm. So he's using little technologies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in general, the series is on what Verbeke terms the meaning crisis, and he's positing that humanity right now is in a meaning crisis, and that is at the crux, the heart of the many uh, myriad problems we see occurring in the world, uh, the breakdown of civilization, as it seems, you know, and break, certainly breakdown of culture and a confusion, a sense of meaninglessness. And so he's tracking back how we got to where we are, why we think the way we think, and how we may usher in an awakening from the meaning crisis by understanding uh, that process of how we think and how we got to where we are. So, yeah, I think that's a half-decent summation, I hope. And, and now, now we're up to uh, the old wise guys from our uh, Grecian fellows. Yes, yes, we're up to the Greeks who gave us vowels. They added vowels to the mm, letter, the yes. alphabetic language. Could you imagine trying to speak a language that was just nothing but assumed vowels, just consonants? You just got to assume, you know, because you can't, you can't like do P and K at the same time without putting a vowel. It's probably a lot harder to learn for that reason. It's it's because you couldn't tell the difference between different words, perhaps as yeah. easily. And, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's hard to think yeah. of. Maybe we'll cover it in this episode. Well, here we go. Welcome again to Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. This is episode four. So last time we discussed the Axial Revolution and in particular uh, how it moved into ancient Israel. We talked about the advent of the psychotechnology of time as cosmic history, as a narrative in which there is an open future and in which your actions, the moral quality of your actions can determine that future in which you participate along with God in the creation of that future. This brings with it the idea of progress, moral progress, the increase in justice, and this is how we move from uh, the less real world to the more real world. For the ancient Israelites, it's understood as a, a journey through time and space, historically. We talked about the kind of God that the God of uh, the Bible is, uh, how he is, in fact, the God of this open future, and particularly he intervenes at moments of, moments of kairos, turning points, uh, where he tries to bring people back on course. We talked about the sense of faith as the sense of well, being on course, f- to being able to sense how history is flowing and unfolding, how you are participating in that story, how you are shaping it and being shaped by it in a tightly reciprocal manner and that sin is the deviation from that, and what is needed is to wake us back up, to bring us back on course. And we talked about how 
the prophets represented that, and they represent increasingly uh, that vision, that axial vision of the moral redemption of history. We then turned to look at how the axial revolution was coming into ancient Greece, and in particular two figures. We look at, we're looking at the figures of Pythagoras and Socrates. Last time we talked about Pythagoras and how he represents an acceptation of that shamanic behavior of altering your state of consciousness, entering into something like fl uh, soul flight, but how for Pythagoras that had been allied with the psychotechnology that was being emphasized in Greece, rational argumentation, the discovery of rational patterns in the world. And Pythagoras, of course, is famous for discovering that uh, music can be expressed mathematically. He is at least associated his school with things like the Pythagorean theorem. This idea that we can enhance our capacity uh, to pick up on the real patterns in the world, even if those are not uh, uh, readily apparent to us, and by coming into a direct awareness of those patterns through our rational insight and faculties, uh, we can transform ourselves. And Pythagoras changes the shamanic soul flight into a release, a freedom from imprisonment in this world, which he represented as being imprisoned in the body, and we fly free. And so soul flight has been turned into a radical kind of self-transcendence in which we are liberating ourselves from the illusory world as we more and more conform to the rational patterns that dictate the structure of reality. The other person who is going to figure, and in fact is figures even more largely in the Axial Revolution uh, in ancient Greece is the figure of Socrates. Socrates and Pythagoras are going to be the two most important influences on Plato, and if you were to put Western civilization onto two feet, uh, the one foot is the Bible, the other foot uh, is the works of Plato. <clears throat> so Socrates is a very unusual figure. Um, there are as many interpretations of Socrates as, uh, as there are of people like Jesus. Uh, even in his time, there were many different Socratic movements, groups of people who claimed to be adherents and disciples of Socrates. He is an enigmatic, interesting, provocative, and maddeningly frustrating figure to try and get clear on. So I want it understood that when I'm talking about Socrates, I'm talking about a particular interpretation uh, that I share with other people. I think it can be well argued for. Uh, but uh, as I said, whether or not this was the full historical Socrates, uh, it's very hard to know. And in some sense, this isn't that relevant because it's the Socrates I'm going to talk about that has become part of the cognitive and existential grammar of the West. So. Getting into the figure of Socrates is kind of interesting. A good way to start is uh, to see how, how provocative a person he was, is to uh, do his biography. So, as many of you probably know, uh, ancient Greece uh, was a, a world in which people believed they could speak to the god through oracles. The oracles were human, or, um, or otherwise natural phenomena that represent how the gods were speaking to humanity. One of the most important oracles is at Delphi. And I've been to Delphi. If you get a chance at some point in your life, go to Delphi. Uh, it will really put the zap on your brain because the way the landscape is organized, 
uh, really does have a transformative impact on sort of your consciousness and your sense of self and your sense of place in the world. So the situation, the, the, the right, uh, uh, the site of Delphi is itself very transformative. What would happen is a woman, Pythia, would sit uh, in a cave or, or something similar to it. Again, the cave, always the caves, like the association with shamanism. Remember that shamanism is associated with cave art, t ritual practices taking place in caves, like in Pythagoras. So she's in a cave. Uh, she's sitting on a tripod. There might be some intoxicating gases in there. She's eating perhaps eucalyptus leaves. Um, she's probably going into some kind of psychedelic trance state. Uh, that seems plausible. And then what happens is people would, because that's, that's, that is a cross-cultural thing, we find that people are thought to have access to the gods by being able to enter into altered states of consciousness. So what would happen is people would come in, they would bring their questions, they would pose questions to Pythia. She would then uh, speak uh, on behalf of the gods, and then after speaking on behalf of the gods, uh, the people around her, would, there would be males who would interpret what she had to say. So, <clears throat> the thing about being an oracle is, if you want to stay in business, you don't want to give clear answers. Right? So if I come to an oracle and I ask a specific question, I, I don't want to give a specific answer. I think there's a very good reason for that. I don't think that people actually can foresee the future in any kind of supernatural manner. So typically, if you go to an oracle and say, should I marry Cassandra, you'll get an answer something like, sometimes the spring comes early. Or should I invest in this project, you'll get an answer like, you know, sometimes the squirrels do not gather too many nuts. You don't know what to make of this, and it might provoke an insight in you, it might provoke a reflection in you. Um, and whether or not events go one way or the other, you can often retrospectively reinterpret them as having been consonant with the Delphic Oracle. And so the Oracle seems to be providing a foresightful information, but usually, of course, it's not. So, what happens is a bunch of Socrates' friends, he's already famous when we sort of meet him in his biography, a bunch of Socrates' friends decide to go to the Oracle and ask the oracle a question about Socrates. So they make the trip to Delphi. And I, 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 in my mind, I sort of picture this almost like half-jokingly. They want to see what kind of crazy answer they're going to get uh, from the oracle about Socrates. So they go all the way up to uh, the oracle, and then they pose their question. And the question they pose is, there anyone wiser than Socrates? And what they're looking for, or perhaps not what they're looking for, what they're expecting is some very cryptic, obscure answer. Like, you know, the snow melts farther in the south, or some bizarre answer. And instead they get this answer, no. There's no human being wiser than Socrates. Crystal, clear answer. And so you can imagine how shocked they are. So they travel back, of course, to relate this story to Socrates. And here's, here's 
something telling. First of all, that's just telling in and of itself that the Delphic Oracle would give such a clear answer. Now, it's, 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 it's a qualified answer. There's no human being wiser than Socrates, right? But when they go back to Socrates, Socrates' response is also profound, interesting. So if we're honest, if we're honest and we found out from some sacred authority that we are very wise, most of us would be very self-congratulatory. It's like, yeah, I knew it. And how do I know that? Because one of the most persistent biases have is that people believe they're above average intelligence. And of course, most people must be wrong about that because most people have, well, average intelligence. But if you ask anybody, is your intelligence average? They will tell you, no, I have above average intelligence. More so, of course, even for ideas such as wisdom. But Socrates isn't self-congratulatory. He doesn't say, yep, I knew it all along. There's the confirmation I so want. Now, that's really telling in of itself. Because to quote a friend of mine, Leo Ferraro, we are entering the age of confirmation porn, in which people are continuously seeking confirmation from their beliefs. And, and part of what's going on to the meaning crisis and the ever-expansion of bullshit in our society is precisely because we have technologically enhanced through social media our capacity for gratifying our bias for confirmation. We'll talk about this later, but we all carry a terrific bias called the confirmation bias in which we seek information that confirms our beliefs and we tend to avoid information that challenges it. And part of what is going wrong right now in our culture is that through a lot of factors that are endemic to the meaning crisis, we are accelerating and exacerbating our propensity for falling into the confirmation bias. And I think that's what my friend Leo means by confirmation porn. We have a kind of pornography. If we take pornography to mean the gratuitous and unmorally justified uh, satisfaction of a desire, then we are living in an age of confirmation porn. Socrates is a corrective to that. Here is a great temptation. He has presented the word of the God that he is wise, wiser than anyone else, and rather than accepting it and giving in to that confirmation bias, his immediate response is to challenge it. Now, the challenge is tricky for Socrates. Socrates is no atheist, although he's going to be charged with atheism when he's put on trial. But he does believe in the gods. He's going to do something very important about the gods. He's going to transform the Greek gods into moral exemplars. But and what that means for Socrates is the gods can't lie. The gods can't lie. For Socrates, and this is one of the ways he's going to transform the understanding of the gods and Plato along with him, the Greek gods, as they are represented in standard Greek myths, aren't very accurate portrayals because those gods lie and they, right, they cheat and they betray. Zeus cheats, Zeus cheats on his, uh, his wife, etc. But for Socrates, and this is part of the Axial Revolution, the gods represent moral exemplars. They represent ways in which we can self-transcend and morally improve. So for Socrates, it's therefore axiomatic that the gods can't lie to him. So the gods are telling the truth. This wedding, and this is something we're going to come back to, the way the Greeks wed divinity, divinity I should say, to reality, 
that truth and sacredness are bound up together is, is going to be really pivotal. Think about how much we separate those two in our culture. All right, all right, we're back. Uh, how much we separate truth and the sacred in our culture today, but they were tightly bound. Yeah. And well, and so this whole thing setting up Socrates, I think, is really important because he was the man, that man, and also the guy that didn't get big-headed about it. Um, yeah, like when he was talking about the Oracle of Delphi, he's being like, nope, there is no one wiser than him. It's like, well, uh, that's, that's, a, pretty profound, that's yeah. a pretty profound thing. So it's, you know, which he's, I guess, showing his wisdom by challenging it and by... Mm -hmm. And we'll hear what his answer ultimately is. It's coming up. Yeah. Um, but this is a good place to stop because we just covered a lot, yeah. including how we got to where we are. So we came from this world of a continuous cosmos, where which the Greeks are still in, but there's this awakening that's starting to happen that ends up kind of creating a bifurcation in us. Um, but Socrates is trying to keep... So he's recognizing that there are reductionists and... There's some sense of people being able to reflect in on themselves now. And he's trying to keep that married with a sense of sacred and truth, I think, in this time where he sees this kairos that's occurring. Well, and even trying to, um, I guess, I don't want to say get ahead of, but, you know, push forward. Um, a perhaps healthier way of being now that we were starting to realize and self-reflect the way we were. Yeah, we were. He's at the point where he's defining the gods at this point and not in a sacrilegious way but you know like what he was saying is he's he defining he's a higher standard way of for the, the highest gods, standard because yeah. the gods cheated they lied and all that oh, but he starts to moralize them and starts to depict them as moral exemplars of different virtues would that be quite the conundrum if you know if you were a person to realize the limitations of your highest the highest potential you know the gods pretty much and realize that with your understanding you've gotten to a point where well I can see higher values and higher potentials. So what does that mean for the gods that we look up to? Mm, so yeah. the impetus for yeah. the... Because they were wrestling hard with how to be. You will. Yeah. They were becoming increasingly sophisticated and... Well, sure. And like at, at a certain point when, you know... Having like, trouble managing themselves in their form of direct democracy that they had. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like, well... If your highest standards, your gods are capable of, you know, cheating, killing, feeding, warring, be, you know, being all the negative, more negative portions of what humans are, what kind of, you know, what kind of standard is that? How high are you going to be able to rise within that? Mm -hmm. It was almost like <clears throat> Socrates was one of the first to realize that you really need to keep your vision of God or the gods much higher yeah. than what even the wisest of wisest can be and well not telling lies being perfect in all things you know like that you need an ultimate exemplar of things and yeah. they, they thought about the original source platonic solids of various objects mm -hmm. and shapes and so maybe that's kind of where he was going there with the idea of gods and tr the transcendence and marrying them with the moral responsibility that we were starting to recognize well sure because the the the, the you know, our morals show themselves directly in our societies and how well we function, mm -hmm. you know, throughout time. You know, that's, 
I, you know, I don't think he came up with all these ideas because he's some type of altruist. I think he wanted, you know, you know, the human race to succeed and become more and become greater. And, you know, because like, he didn't, yeah, he in didn't his time, I'm sure there was plenty of corruption and stagnation. You know, yeah, so. well, they were already, yeah, they were already starting to become corrupt. And I mean, had been like, yeah. the idea of original sin is that we've always been corrupt. We've always had this lizard brain yeah, right. that, you know, if appealed to or we allow ourselves to be run by, uh, can be quite detrimental to the tribe, mm-hmm. to the individual, to the family, to the community. Yeah, so what kind of gods are gods that would do that to their own families, you know? Like, mm. Yeah, like, they were cre- they were just like blown up versions of humans with superpowers. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. So so we have Pythagoras, exaptation of shamanic behavior. Yeah. He allied that way of being going into caves and whatnot like the shamans uh, with with the recognition of rational patterns that he was recognizing in reality and in mathematics geometry and music oh what was that thing i saw while we were watching it uh the first mathematical magician yes i realized math is in everything mathematical magician math is the you know central language of the universe whether divine or material Mm-hmm. Yeah, I won't say the first, but you know, the first we really know about. You know, there was people, I'm sure, long beforehand, and they. Well, of course, you have to. You can't achieve the Bronze Age without having expert mathematicians. But there's being able to use the techniques and then being able to understand them and and where to look for them. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I yeah, think, math probably came out of. I think it came out of like early Arabia or India. That whole region was India, I think, back then. I think for the most part, math has been two sticks and a string. You can fold the string, you can divide the string, you can multiply the string, you can mm-hmm. make circles, arcs, tri- yeah, tri- tri- every shape. You just sticks and strings, man. So, um, so Pythagoras was de- definitely into the idea of liberating ourselves. Yeah, and then and then uh, Socrates and Pythagoras uh, are very much where Plato comes together. And how we get Western civilizations, value sets, these yeah. moral systems that we live by. And the idea of, do you want to improve yourself over time? Do you want to see yourself as doing better next year than you were doing today? And I think that's a very ancient Hebrew notion, way of being, um, that is married with the idea of Plato and self-realization. Um, before we go on too, uh, too much yeah. further... Yeah. Um, a thought that sprung in my head while we were watching that about, you know, like going into the cave, you know, they mm-hmm. go, they go into this cave and then while, you know, the oracles are in caves and if they're not in caves, they're in structures that we've built to simulate caves. Yeah, actually. And there's, it's not like, and then you get a picture. And if you go in, is it in? Yeah, it should be working. Yeah. So, you know, like if you look at that picture and this is just a depiction of it, but imagine the wow you would feel because it's mysterious and you know, these things are because part of you know part of it's not just them you know the the oracle has a tripping experience and then the guys on the ground are like oh this is what the oracle said and just the trust thing oh yeah okay yeah of course they trusted him but it's like oh yeah we trust you but they they're feeling they're almost you know what do they call it like you're uh and you don't actually smoke weed, but uh, you catch the buzz anyway. Uh, what are they called? <laughs> yeah. But basically, yeah, you got the one person that's got the full experience, but just being in this building gives them 
being the near, in their proximity. So know, we've we've actually become very sophisticated. That contact with, high, contact that. transcendent. Like if you go into, like, well, if you meet somebody, a good church yeah. or a good like you know cathedral mm, or something like that, 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 that feeling that you inspire, or huge mountain range. Yeah, and, and you know, or deep underground, and quiet, and you know, it's like because that wow feeling is the first step to the transcend, uh, trans, transcendent experience. Transcendent yeah. experience that. Oh, you know, don't become overcome with the wow because it makes it harder to have the rest of the experience. But yeah, I just wanted to bring up, it's like even with our structures, we simulate caves. You know, going into the cave, we go into church, which is this beautiful cave, but it's a cave nonetheless. Right. You know, uh, we, you know, you could imagine, you know, like... And it's, it's like the forest, too. Yeah, well, sure. Well, the light shining through the trees. And it, well, if you don't have caves... Of the trees and then the eaves and... You don't have like an overabundance of caves, but you have lots of forests and significant spots. How do you think Stonehenge is there? Because it gives you that feeling and it kept track of time. And it was like, oh, it takes the above and brings it down to the bottom level. Everybody gets a similar feeling when they're all there for the same reason. And it catches on. As above, so below. So you could call that a psycho, like a collective psychotechnology that mm -hmm. we've developed. Yeah, that all of us to get mm -hmm. all of us that feeling without having to necessarily... And to be able to track the seasons, and, you know, like, cause like, yeah, sometimes we didn't have access to them and you got to keep it vague because you can't say anything direct because that's not how it works. You know, that's what the magician does. It convinces you that it's magic. And yes. I like what Vicky's yes. doing because it's like, well, well it can still be intriguing, intriguing and awesome, but it's not hocus pocus. Yeah. We're still, still spinning sound waves in, in the midst of invisible yeah. space with vibrating, uh, electrons that, you know, what is vibrating? That's just like cycling. A little bit of this. It's, it's the rate of cycling that, yeah, uh, you know. Measured in hertz. That causes the frequency or the amount of vibration. I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah, no, we'll get rambling. So let's, uh, before we get rambling, uh, let's back it up just a little bit so we can. Yeah, so we're going to drop back in here. Well, let's see. Did we cover everything that we uh, can? We can get into the rest of it here after a little more, maybe. Oh, we got into confirmation bias. Oh, yeah, the confirmation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, so the idea of asking, is there anyone wiser than Socrates? And, of course, he could have been like, yeah, sure, but he was willing to question um, himself. Which you proved know. him the wisest. Because <laughs> we do, you know, nowadays, we, we love that confirmation porn, as Verveke put it. We mm -hmm. love things that confirm what we believe. Mm -hmm. We prefer those over what might actually be reality. Which, um, so we got to be careful when we're researching because we'll look for what confirms. Well, sure, and that reinforces our correlative thought processes instead mm -hmm. of... Um, uh, you just further convince yourself. In, instead of the... Um, yeah. It's yeah, wise to challenge one's own beliefs. beliefs. But, um, yeah, sorry, I'm trying to reference back to a few episodes ago. Uh, episodes ago. Oh, talking, sorry. But, um, <laughs> like, confirmation bias feeds back on the correlative aspect instead of the causa causational aspect. So it's kind of yeah. doing exactly That's the right. opposite of the work that you <coughs> want to be doing to train your brain to see causation opposed to correlation. Yes. And while it, it, feel, yeah, correlation it feels Correlation is good, not necessarily you know? causation. Yeah. It's not necessarily the cause of what's sure. happening. Yeah. Well, it might just be a correlation yeah. that two things line up at the same time. 
Yeah, but yeah, you you can't say that like bringing back piracy is going to reduce global warming or something like that. Yeah, that that was the example, or you know, I don't know, uh, some type of music hit the market and then you know, uh, suddenly cigarette sales boosted. Right. You know, unless it was a song about cigarettes. Well, even even if it was a song about cigarettes, it still it's like you got to be able to prove the causation. Yeah. But there's definitely a strong correlation, very likely causation in that case. But that that's how you differentiate. It's very easy for us to look for. But, you know, they don't have to be obviously tied for people. Already put, prefer. Yeah. Well, the thing with confirmation bias also, the more you pretend, the more loony tune you'll get it. Like, the people who actually genuinely believe the Earth is flat. And I don't mean the people who have are, fun <laughs> with birds it. Birds are robots. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> birds aren't real. Yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, but, think, you know. I wonder if, like... I think yeah, that's either both both of those started out as just probably just trolls, trolls, you know, like yeah. in, in real life trolling. But yeah, yeah, but that's where confirmation bias can lead you, and, and why it's dangerous, and it feels good. So it's you gotta you know wield it, or or it will wield you. Yes, yes. All right. So Socrates challenges the notion that he's wise. How does he do it? And here we are. How does he do it? But for Socrates, they are interpenetrating. So the gods can't lie. They have to be disclosers of the truth. But on on the other hand, Socrates has significant and profound self-knowledge. One of the things I have tattooed on my back is know thyself. It was inscribed at the Delphic Oracle, but Socrates makes it his personal slogan for life. There's been some recent things written about this, and I think they've largely uh, reflected a misunderstanding of what know thyself means. Know thyself doesn't mean become aware of your biography. I mean, we all are prey to that, and we have a culture that exacerbates that narcissism. We like to stroke the ego of our personal autobiography and store up treasured moments that we can point to other people that indicate our uniqueness and our specialness and why the universe should specially take care of and pay attention to us. That's not what know thyself means. It doesn't mean that kind of stroking of your autobiographical ego. Know thyself is much more a kind of direct participatory knowing. It means understanding how you operate. It's not, it's, if I were to use a, a literary analogy, it's not like your autobiography. It's more like your owner's manual. It's how do you operate? What are the principles? What are the powers, perils? What are the constraints that are operating within you? Socrates, as we'll see, thought that that kind of self-knowledge was central. And this is the core of the Axial Revolution. The Axial Revolution is this critical awareness and sense of responsibility of one's own cognition. So, on one hand... The gods can't lie when they say Socrates is the wisest human being. But on the other hand, Socrates has deep self-knowledge. He has Socratic self-knowledge in which he is convinced that he is not wise. And he is not willing to give up on either one of those. And that's a telling thing about him. That tells you something very central about him. He holds these two together. His existential self-knowledge and this disclosure from reality are going, neither one of them is going to be given a greater authority. 
They're going to be held together. So now Socrates faces a personal dilemma, a dilemma that goes to the core of who and what he is. How can it be that he is the wisest human being when he knows that he is not wise? So this is a very deep dilemma that he sets for himself. It's a kind of profound problem that he seeks to solve. And what that means is that Socrates starts on a quest. He starts on a quest of trying to determine how both of those things could be the case at the same time. Now the quest seems to have evolved very naturally into a way in which he interacted with those around him. What Socrates would do is he would go to people who claimed or would credited with being wise, and he would ask them questions. He invented, in fact, what has become known as the Socratic method, also known as Elenchus. The Socratic method is a way of asking questions in order to try and draw somebody out. We'll talk a little bit more about Elenchus in a minute, but first I want to talk about the two types of people that we have good reason to believe Socrates was interacting and what that can tell us about the Socratic notion of wisdom. And we're going to see how this Socratic notion of wisdom knowledge, and this idea of self-knowledge is deeply bound up with how meaningful your life is. So, the two groups that Socrates, the two groups of people that were accredited as being wise were the philosophers and the sophists. If you remember last time we talked about Pythagoras, Pythagoras actually invents the word philosophy. Uh, it comes from two Greek words, philia, sophia. This means right, the, the, the friendship love of wisdom. So, and Pythagoras creates a community around him. You create a community, distributed cognition, in which you interact with other people in order to try and pursue wisdom. A philosopher is someone who, in concert with others, is a lover of wisdom. So Socrates is interacting with the philosophers, and in particular, one group of philosophers that come before him. In fact, Socrates is regarded as creating a revolution in philosophy precisely from how he differed from the natural philosophers. And he's also doing the Socratic method with the sophists. And you can see that this also comes from Sophia, wisdom. It's where we get our word sophisticated from. The sophists are also people who claim to be wise. Now, the natural philosophers are very interesting. The natural philosophers seem to represent a fundamental change in human cognition. So I'm going to take as an example one of the natural philosophers who is considered to be the first example of it, Thales. Now, because these guys are just as we're coming out of the Dark Age, and they predate Socrates, sometimes by a couple hundred years, right, or thereabouts, a lot of what we have from them is very fragmentary. We don't have very much. Um, in fact, you can put most of Thales' philosophy into three lines. 
uh, into three sentences. I once taught this to a course of mine, and one of my students went out and made a T-shirt in which they put all of Thales' philosophy on one T-shirt, because we, that's how fragmentary it is. Let's talk about these three fragments, because they reveal something very important. One is, all is the moist. The next is, the lodestone has suke. And this is important because this word suke, which we now pronounce psyche, is going to be the basis of the idea of psychology as a discipline. And finally, everything is filled with gods, which sounds very preaxial, almost shamanic. Now, what you have to pay attention to here is not what Thales is saying, but what, the, what he says reveals about the kind of thinking he is creating. What does he mean by this? All is the moist. Of course, there's controversy about all of this because it's fragmentary, it's old, but given how other people in the ancient world, like Aristotle, followed up on this, a plausible interpretation is everything is made out of water. Everything is made out of water. Now, that's false. Everything isn't made out of water. It's not just scientifically false, it's kind of metaphysically false. Everything can't be made out of water, or we wouldn't be able to identify water on its own. But put that aside. Think about this. What surrounds ancient Greece? Water. If you dig into the ground, what will you hit? Water. What falls from the sky? Water. What does everything need in order to live? Water. What can take the shape of any container you put it in? Water. See, what I'm trying to get you to see is, although Thales' idea is false, it's highly rational. It's highly plausible. What he's doing is using his reason and his observation to come up with a plausible explanation of what the underlying substance is behind everything. By the way, pay attention to this word. This means stands under, another metaphor. Right? It's related to... Lots of other words where we use standing to talk about understanding, for example. Okay, so notice what he's doing here. He's not doing mythology. He's not generating a narrative about some divine agent. He's not saying, this has happened because Zeus cheated on Hera, and then Hera sought... There, there is no story here. There's no mythological narrative. There's no right, divine agents involved. That's not how he's trying to explain or understand. Instead, he's doing a rational analysis based on observation. And he's trying to get at the underlying stuff that everything is made out of. Do you see what I'm showing you? What Thales is inventing, is there any other word for this? He's inventing how to think scientifically. How, how this happens is obscure. But that's what's happening. He's inventing the kind of thinking that we now, and I'm going to say it again, take it for granted as if it's natural. But he's inventing it. What does this mean? The lodestone has suke. So lodestone is a natural form of magnet. What's interesting about magnets is that they can move themselves and they can move other things around them. The original meaning of this is, of course, breath or wind, but what it ultimately refers to and came to refer to is right, anything that's a living in the sense that it's self-moving. 
that it can move itself and it can therefore cause other things to move. So I can move myself and therefore I can make other things move. The magnet can move itself and it can make other things move. I'm aware of suke within me. I see the magnet doing something similar and therefore I conclude the magnet and I both share suke. He's wrong. But that doesn't matter. This is a plausible, rational argument. Here he's trying to get at what we would now call the underlying force behind things. Now please remember that, by the way, that suke originally means your capacity for being able to move yourself and make other things move. And you may ask, well, why does that become the word for mind, psychology, mind, suke? Because the mind is that part of you which you can most move. It is the most self-moving part of you, and it's where all of your capacity to move other things starts. If I'm going to move this marker, my mind first moves itself, and that drives me to move the marker. But that way of even thinking about me so that I can start a science of the psyche starts with Thales. Boy. Wow, yeah. <laughs> yeah, all right, all right. <laughs> so that was really cool. So Thales, he's trying to use re reason and observation to understand what the underlying stuff of reality is made of. Yeah, so when he was... So he's like, all is moist. So it's almost like he's thinking of, like, it, everything is water above not us. Not just moist, water the moist. Sky, the moist, so it's like... Well, so I'm, I'm interpreting. I'm picturing it like fog or mist, in that it breaks down into smaller, smaller so particles. I think that's so he's opposite. trying to get down. I think to that's it. opposite of what Thales may have been saying, um, and I think what Verbeke was saying it was wasn't necessarily like oh, it all has mist in it or something. Else no, like no, that. no. He's just saying all is well, hold on, made of water yeah. in a sense. No, well, I, I don't even way. think he's saying that. I think it's saying everything has the same. It does the same that water it's does. It, fill, it fills a cup. Water fills a cup. It moves things. It becomes other things. So I think he's more talking about the nature. The of, nature of, of water. Of, of, of moisture. It, of everything somehow fill, has the nature of it has, water. It can fill everything. It changes. It changes it, yeah. It, yeah. As well as everything. Because, well, if it does that, everything must be composed of water. Yeah, water. Yeah. So he was like half wrong and half right, but that doesn't matter. It's the idea. No, like, well, but he was trying to break yeah. it down without a uh, supernatural yeah. explanation, you could say. And so that was really very much the beginning of the psychotechnology that we developed, known as scientific reasoning or logic. Yeah, sure. Trying to logically break something down. Like yeah, that. give it up to using your reason and observation. Give it up to Thales. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. I, I had no clue. Yeah, so all is moist. The lodestone has psyche. Yeah. Suke. Well, it's the ability to manipulate oneself and, and not like... So, yeah, we have the capacity to be able to move ourselves. And some, and other things. And other the things. The lodestone move, moves the needle. The capacity, seem to have the capacity to do this. And, and then it, that leads to everything that's filled with gods. Here's something interesting, though, and it's, you know... Um, suke, originally meaning being able to affect and, and, and do that kind of thing. But then going into psyche, yeah, there's mind. A, so there's an interesting little you can choose to do something and then do it. Little thing dug in here is the lodestone. Also, the lodestone can move itself and orient itself mm -hmm. to north, right? Mm -hmm. It can also move the needle. 
-hmm. but you can also rub the needle with it, and now the needle has characteristics of the lodestone. Whoa. Yeah, right? And the psyche is like that because you can write things down and influence other minds. So it has the component where you use your mind to move yourself, to move others, mm -hmm. and give others the characteristics of your own psyche. What an Just saying, it is yeah, weird, man. Then, like, yeah. For them, it made sense. And, and that's so cool. So everything is filled with gods, which kind of ties into that. Um, and I think he's going to get into this a little yeah. bit more, but I had to, yeah. you know, just bring up a few of those spots on that because, yeah. Well, yeah, so we got into the, so Socrat Socratic method is to draw one out. By so we, we got into how Socrates uh, said, know thyself, but it didn't mean to know your your biography yeah your biographical it's very story. well it's it, what do you say your owner's manual basically your instructional yeah, it's manual not, it's definitely not it, like but... stroking of the ego yes yeah, yeah. your owner's manual um how you operate uh your powers your perils your constraints how you are yeah mm -hmm. and then and so this is the furtherance of that realization that we are responsible for our own cognition self-knowing uh plus not knowing at once was what Socrates was able to do. Yeah. He was able to know what he didn't know, but he also had taken the time to know himself in this sense of know thyself, not knowing one's biography, but really knowing how one operates. I'm sure it drove him nuts too, within, being, being yeah. stuck between you internally know, what mm -hmm. the gods must be saying of you and then what. Well, he had the voice that he could hear, so yeah. it's almost like he was hearing his conscience or maybe mm -hmm. he heard it as a voice. Um, but that's really interesting. So he got on, well, he didn't get on. He, he challenged both the natural philosophers and the sophists. Um, and the natural philosophers were like Thales. Now, he agreed with them to a point, too, it sounds like. But he definitely challenged the sophists, especially. Um, and he celebrated this idea of this thing called philosophy, which is like a fellowship, yeah, friendship type of love, philia, plus sophia. Well, it's taking the old sophist and Sophia's way love of and wisdom. adding, adding the, the 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 brotherly nature of like you know camaraderie and exchange and mm -hmm. you know because like well the Socratic well, sophistry method. can be used to lie to people. Well, yeah, or lie to oneself, bullshit oneself. Well, do Is the it... sophists do they go out and teach other people their methods? I don't think they do. I thought they were the type to hold, hold like they would teach some people, but they weren't teaching yeah, everybody. Like the ones that they're on the side. Socrates, of, I'm sure. you, know, you know, sat around, asked questions, drew things out of people. People would sit around them, and that's what they do. What I said, what I said earlier, he was sitting around asking too many questions. And they well, he started to... drawing out too much. Yeah, yeah. Too much. And then more and more people, you know, that it affects. Because he noticed that sophistry was being used to lie to people and bullshit people. Well, it's interesting. Scandalize. Nowadays, sophistry is kind of like, you know, like a, a, a negative um, like term or something you can call, you know, oh, that's sophistry. And just, mm -hmm. you know, it's like it's it's that deep in, in, our, yeah. in our in our language in our, and how we express ourselves. Memory. That, you know, because like, you know, if I said sophist, they... To be wary of people that are using... Uh, sophistry without a love of wisdom yeah, without a, a love of and a fellowship with their community yeah. that they're doing it without so yeah philosophy uh, in concert with others in the love of wisdom yeah yeah sitting yeah. on the hill and talking about things out front of coffee shops and stuff you know that's where the real philosophy happens you know 
modern day well i guess modern not anymore. Days, Co- yeah. coffee shops i don't know how they are anymore but i like, guess that's the closest modern day equivalent yeah we don't have that place to go to for wisdom though. maybe if you got if you got a good pub maybe i mean just sit around sometimes and, wisdom will be said in the pub or sometimes during like aa meetings you'll hear yeah. some great wisdom dropped or there, there's certain places where these things occur sometimes in, in church i guess um sometimes in deep conversation with friends and the right moments, there's rare, really awesome, special, long night, late night conversations about life. Uh, then, but yeah, we don't have any particular places where we celebrate that anymore. Like we used to. Yeah. Uh, I think it'll come back around. I think it's coming yeah. back. I, yeah. But I think, you know, people have gotten, um, what's the word scared straight. So they're not talking about things anymore because either, Mm. somebody's going to get offended or yeah. not offended yeah. or well usually it's I don't want to get attacked by somebody else so I'm not going to say nothing Socrates didn't have that problem no he asked too many no, questions he brings that up like we're getting <laughs> to the cause of the meaning crisis yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and, yeah not to be a downer or nothing but like if you're old enough to remember um, you know like sitting outside coffee shops chain smoking cigarettes drinking black coffee, talking to the college kids that about their philosophy courses, or you just got friends that are weird like us, or you're one of those weird people too. Um, you know, you just find your weird friends and you just sit there and you talk. Like I remember I could raise days doing that. Just yeah. Discussing things, other things, people know things that you don't know, but you mm-hmm. picking up on things, catching up on the news of the thing, you know, whatever you're doing. Or if you're doing nothing, that's that's nice too. Just sit there and do nothing. Have you ever tried it? Like yeah. actually doing nothing, like yeah, right. truly doing nothing, not like thinking about stuff you got to do, and that frees you open to the just like oh, well. meditation, yeah. meditation, baby. <laughs> yeah, That's the name of the game. Well, I think we covered everything in that little bit. Yeah, so, uh, that was a good little bit though. Here. Yeah, that is. So now we're getting. To, I think I'm gonna drop back into more on Socrates. Yeah. yeah, I think where he was talking about uh, the there are gods and everything is the next little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah very pagan you know very yeah, yeah. D- deeper even yeah or you not know. what modern pagan but like you know like before there was the Abrahamic religion and all that stuff yeah. very like there's, there's like there's the nature of the local stone folk and religions and, of the different yeah. regions where people had different tree yeah. gods and tree gods, gods and uh, make your fence gods. right gods or else your cows will get out gods berries and gnomes yeah all right for faith let's rock what? what? What's, What's this? this? Everything. This seems so scientific, John. And then you're throwing this at me, the gods. Isn't that a throwback to mythology? I don't think so. I don't think so. See, look what he's doing here. Now, I, inter- I need to introduce a term. I promise to try and keep the technicalities to a minimum, but we need a term here, right? So, ontology is the study of being. The structure of reality. Ontological analysis is when you use reasoning to try and get at the underlying structure of reality by getting at the underlying stuff and the underlying forces that are at work in it. 
So Thales is introducing the ontological analysis that drives the scientific revolution. What are scientists doing? They're trying to get at the underlying stuff. They're still trying to do it right now. They're trying to get at the underlying forces. They're trying to see into the depths of reality. They're engaging in ontological depth perception. This doesn't mean, right, physical, like this doesn't mean our normal perception into spatial depth. What I'm seeing, what I mean here is seeing with the mind into the depths of reality, ontological depth perception. Now once you get that he's discovering this way, he's discovering, he's inventing this way of looking at the world that's going to bleed into right here, right now. Think about how powerful that way must be. Think of the power in that vision. He gets an access to the depths of reality. And what is he saying? That provokes awe. That provokes wonder. That gives him a sense of connecting to what is most real. It helps him to make the most sense of things. And that's what it is to experience something as sacred. So this is powerful stuff. Now Socrates was seems to have been influenced by a particular one of these natural philosophers called Anaxagoras, who was in Athens just before Socrates. Uh, Anaxagoras um, declared that the sun wasn't a god, for example, that it was a hot rock, and he got into a lot of trouble for things like this. Socrates seems to have enjoyed, more than enjoyed, he seems to have been impressed by the natural philosopher's commitment to getting at the truth. But ultimately, Socrates, he rejects this. Not because he rejects reason, rational analysis, he's going to engage in that himself multiple times, or argumentation. His whole Socratic method, as we'll see, is all about argumentation. What does he reject about the natural philosopher's? They don't help him with his axial project. See, the problem with the natural philosophers is they give you truth without transformation. They give you facts. They give you knowledge, but they do not indicate how you become wise. They do not indicate how you overcome self-deception. They do not indicate, as Socrates would say, how to become a good person. Now, it's interesting how much people say that even now even today, sometimes in clear ways that are helpful, sometimes in confused and mixed up ways which are unhelpful. But the idea that our scientific worldview, while giving us all kinds of knowledge, does not in any way train us for wisdom, does not tell us how to become wise, does not tell us how to transcend ourselves and become better people. This is a common complaint, and we'll come back to it, about the scientific worldview. Socrates sees it even then. So here, you have truth, but no relevance. The truths that are discovered are not existentially relevant. They don't matter. They don't enable the cultivation of wisdom, the transformation and transcendence of the self. 
Now, Socrates interacting with the sophist, which is famous, is a lot more antagonistic. This, this, when he talks about his relation here, it's much more the language or the tone, at least that's how I read it, of disappointment. He was expecting more and he found less. Here, and it's not clear how much this is Socrates and how much this is Plato who's writing about Socrates, but here the relationship is much more antagonistic. Now, who are the sophists? Well, if you remember, we talked about when the Axial Revolution is coming to Greece, you're getting the emergence of democracy. And in, in Athens, the democracy is direct democracy. Now, before we get uh, too far into this, we don't want to over-glamorize this. Yes, Athens is uh, the beginning of democracy, but let's remember, if I was a woman, the last place I would want to dwell in the ancient world is ancient Athens. Ancient Athens treats its women horribly, just horribly. Sparta treats its women better than Athens. Democracy is only for Athenian adult males, women, foreigners, anybody else, even if they're Greek, they're not right, considered to be worthy of participation in the democratic process. And it's a direct democracy, right? Everybody files into the assembly and votes on everything. Now, what that means is, as I've already mentioned, your capacity for debate and argumentation is a route to power. This is why it develops so powerfully in ancient Athens. The better you are at arguing, the better you are at persuading other people, the more powerful and influential you will be. What happens is a group of people invent a new psychotechnology. They invent rhetoric. They invent ways of picking up on how language and cognition interact. They find standardized skills that can be practiced and developed so that you can influence people increase the chance that your language will change their mind. Now, the sophists were only con concerned with teaching the skills. They basically separated the technology from any kind of moral commitment. So, for example, a particular sophist might go in the morning to this aristocrat and help him argue for why Athens should increase the number of ships in its navy, and in the afternoon go to this aristocrat and help him craft an argument as to why Athens should decrease the number of ships in the navy. The sophists didn't care, which was the case. What mattered was empowering the individual to win the argument. Now, how does this work, and how can we relate it to our, uh, to our lives now? So. Basically, a good way to think about this is the sophists pick up on the fact that when we are communicating, we're going to talk about this a lot later as we go on, we are being driven by what we find salient and relevant, not just what we find true or believe to be the case. Remember with the nine-dot problem, what stands out to us, what's relevant, shapes how we see things and how we understand them. So, let me give you a modern 
analog for what, how rhetoric works, a place where rhetoric is readily apparent. Advertising. Okay. See, the point about advertisement is to make use of the way your brain will associate things, the way your brain finds certain things salient, make things seem highly relevant to you in order to manipulate your behavior. Now, what's telling about this, and this is the point about the sophist, is how much that can happen in a way that is disconnected from whether or not it's true. I mean, you watch the beer commercial. And here it is. Here's really attractive people. And they all get together, and they're all having a great time, and it's this beer, and here's the beautiful, attractive people. Go into an actual bar. That's not like that. Okay, and you're not, you're not going to see but, uh, the kind of broken down lives, drunk people. Now, here's the thing. You know that that's not true. You know that, you, like, if you, like, if you went into a bar and you actually saw something like that happening, if when you washed your hair with shampoo, you were suddenly in the shampoo commercial, you'd worry about your sanity. You know it's not true. It doesn't matter. It makes certain stimuli salient to you. And so you buy the beer. You buy the shampoo. This is what I mean when I say your beliefs aren't the only thing driving you. So this brings us to a notion I promised to come back to. And I want to use it technically. I'm not trying to be vulgar, but this is important. This is the notion of bullshit. And the classic work is by Harry Frankfurt on this. His essay on bullshit. 20 years old now. Because Frankfurt is very interested in talking about the difference between somebody being a bullshit artist and somebody being a liar. Because they aren't the same. They can overlap. A person can be both a liar and a bullshit artist. But let's talk about pure cases. How does the liar work? The liar depends on your commitment to the truth. The liar tells you something. I'll use P to represent some proposition. The liar says P to you, even though not P is the case, because if he can get convince you that P is the case, you will change your behavior, because your behavior is, to some degree, significant degree, influenced by your commitment to the truth. If you believe P is true, that will change your behavior. That's how lying works. Lying depends on the fact that, in general, people are committed to the truth, because, in general, people want to be in touch with reality. That's not how bullshit works. See, bullshit, unlike lying, works by making you dis disinterested, unconcerned with whether or not what, with what is being said is true. When somebody's bullshitting you, they're trying to get you to not find important or right, central how true the claim is. Instead, they're working in terms of the rhetoric. They're trying to capture you in terms of how catchy it is, like the advertiser, how salient it is, how much it grabs your attention. So uh, there was a famous example from this, from The Simpsons. And you know, The Simpsons has been on for a 1,000 years now, and I think it's still on. So this is from a long time ago. And at the time, it seemed so uh, almost absurdly ridiculous funny, but it, it's turned out to be extremely, extremely prescient. Because the example is a political example. There are two aliens running for political office. And they're giving a speech to Americans. Right? And I mean no insult to Americans, but 
I mean, I think we're aware of how what I'm going to say is relevant to American politics right now. And the speech goes something like this. One of the aliens named Kang says, My fellow Americans, when I was young, I dreamt of being a baseball. But now we must move forward, not backwards, upwards, twirling, twirling towards freedom. And everybody cheers. Now it's meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. But he invokes youth, baseball, moving forward, moving upward, twirling, and freedom. And so if you're an American, you get this rush. You get this rush. That rush is, these are all salient things. They're highly relevant to you. You associate and identify with them. And so you're swept up. You're caught up in it. Now, why does bullshit... So, yeah, so bullshit. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, get I, I, I've got a good, just real quick, a good definition for the bullshit. But... So bullshit is rhetoric that doesn't care about the truth. Yeah. Plain and simple. Yeah, it doesn't care about the truth. It's just trying to sell you something. So it's going to make... Yeah. It's going to try and get you with a catchy idea or catchy theme. We're going to use bullshit a lot more. You know, like Old Spice commercials. It's not selling you on how good the deodorant is. It's just literally trying to make something that catches your attention. So it's super salient. They're catchy. They're hilarious. They're fun. And so it distracts you from thinking about the truth. Just buy this thing already, you know. And I'm not saying don't buy Old Spice. Or to buy Old Spice or not, you know. I'm kind of, I don't buy Old Spice, but I like them just because of uh, their their marketing. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, the beginning of where we came back. Um, So it's powerful. So that's the power of the sophists or the sophists or sophists, sophistry. Um, Yeah, and the the sophists were a, like, Though it was a direct democracy, it wasn't everybody having a say. It's only a select group of people having a say, and then only the best at arguing mm-hmm. have really the say. Yes, yeah, so like you said, it's so a very chauvinist re- society. They had democracy, so but that it's direct really democracy. actually pu- pushed pushed. They had to be good at arguing. It, it pushed us into well, be, having to develop rhetoric, which is the psychotechnology. Mm-hmm. The bullshit the is the application of said technology. It's the application of it. Yeah, yeah. bullshit is the rhetoric. Yeah. Is the active form of of it, yeah. and we can bullshit ourselves. Okay, so well, yeah, you can't lie to yourself. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. literally, you cannot. You can bullshit yourself, so you don't care, but you can't lie to yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but, okay, so yeah, we we looked at the study of ontology, or ontology being the study of the structure of being or the nature of reality. Ontology. Onto and into, like, like, yeah. So you're looking into the deepest of what makes up the universe. Yeah, and on which turns something turning on. What makes the universe happen? So at this point in time, we're we've gotten to the point where we're not just looking out like through time, Mm -hmm. like he mentioned last episode with our relationship with God. You know, having this process being um, becoming relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's out as well as looking in yeah. and deeply that depth perception mm-hmm. that he brought up, that mm-hmm. ontological well, I think depth that's what perception. Socrates is trying to make sure we yeah. keep doing. We're looking out and, and in at the and, same time. Because yeah. if we stop and we only do one or the other. Yeah, well, then, he, he was doing both. The, and he was doing both. He is the wisest, but he also isn't. Yes. That's, you know, holding the two I, things I know nothing, but yeah. he also knew himself really well. Yeah. Yeah. 
So the ontological and ontological analysis is using reason to get at the underlying stuff, the underlying nature or forces that make up reality. Um, and then, and this really, this was the least still kicking off the scientific revolution and which became ontological depth perception, seeing into the depths of reality. How deep can you go? Yeah. Yeah. And accessing the depths of reality provokes awe, wonder, what's most real. And so Thales was really taken with this. Um, and so he got into this idea of what to, to make the most sense of things is sacred. Like this, the sense of the sacred, the sense of transcendence is an awe inspiring moment and is full of epiphanies on top of epiphanies and has the deepest sense of reality. Well, it's interesting that the word is used to the sacred because when something is sacred, it's something that you would sacrifice either for or sacrifice to, well, in, in the old sense, gain favor with the gods, but in the new sense, to progress and forward. And, you know, these thinkers had to sacrifice a lot to basically expand our ability to do what they're doing. Yeah, to um, this day, it's, it's all so because think, of... Think about how important something Plato is Plato take with Socrates and Pythagoras. It, or yeah. sacrifice it to, you know, like... Well, it gets real. Sacred. Yeah, we're going to get into that yeah. d- deeply here. So, okay, so I think I was talking about Socrates on accident when I was, when I was saying Thales. Um, mm. Yeah, so Thales being a natural philosopher, Socrates still maintaining a sense of the transcendent. Uh, Socrates picked up from Anaxagoras, Anaxagoras, that who said the sun wasn't a god. Huh, it's yeah. a hot rock, and not quite right, but it is a ball of burning plasma. It, it, it's it really hot. It's a fire. Fixed yeah. point, or a, there's no rock to it. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I guess if it cooled off, it turned into a rock like the Earth did. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm sure. I don't know. Like, what is a rock? Can, can, you know. <laughs> yeah, the, the word uh, rock uh, points uh, to solid. Uh, a rock has moist, compressed, or is moist mineral. The rock is moist. Moist minerals. Yeah. It, but is the sun moist? We'll break. We'll break that argument real quick. It's Thales. liquid. It's yeah. Liquid. Okay. Yeah. Okay. No, you're right. right. They are ice. You know, or they can be gaseous. Yeah. Can't That's be. why he was he was going with moist. I think. Yeah. That's clever. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and it fills any vessel, and it can move anything. Okay. So yeah, Socrates rejects. The natural philosophers, they had great points. He actually kind of liked them, but he realized that they were providing truth without transformation for the human being. They did not include how to become good people, how to develop wisdom. And so the scientific worldview, to this day we realize, doesn't give us wisdom. It it can't be a substitute for moral systems. It's yeah. not. It's not showing you the like a process you can use in order to achieve wisdom, and that's the issue. It could just show you, okay, well, it this is this, and yeah. this is that, and this is the truth, and this is this thing. But it's like, well, okay, with all that, how do I make a how do I make a pie? You know, right? It's yeah. how do you make the pie how opposed to, be in to the what's world. in the pie? Yeah, and how do we have anything that's like a powerful motivation for people of how to be in the world without philosophy, without wisdom? Yeah. Without a sense of moral rightness, well, is that not... so? You need it to be very convincing. So you have to say, "Well, it's transcendent uh, law that tells us that we should be good," because it's just as effective a survival technique to go around and hoard and steal and 
kill and you know this and that to get what you need to survive i mean if that's all that the goal is yeah, uh, just, you know, how do you argue against that you know? well the core of all utopian or dystopian or yeah, that's why we created the idea of a prime mover of gods in the first place we, you needed something big yeah and threatening to but well, also we needed something deep and beautiful and loving to be able to relate the idea of love well, the, the, the level of truth, the level of God is always riding just ahead of us, and then we get great thinkers mm-hmm. and great teachers that come along and propel it even further. Yeah, you know, my idea of God. Yeah, is, what are we saying when we say God? Yeah. Well, what is yours? Mine is well, regardless of what I believe, like you know, like I'm, I'm a Christian, raised Christian, back, but I'm not necessarily your stereotypical Christian, and not just because I cuss and I like to smoke cigarettes and drink booze, but. Um, I, I believe God is the, well, okay. So physically it would be everything in the universe and everything that isn't in the universe aware of itself. But then on the other end, there's our relationship with it, which is, it's the furthest thing out that we could possibly ever think of morally or anything, the highest of the highest of the high. So it gives and us then the highest example higher than of that. how we can be. And then higher than yeah. that. Because as we're finding out looking through this, you know, first the gods were corrupt. But then they get a bump up. And then they get a bump up. And now it's this, you know, for the most part, the idea of this God is the universe thing. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know yeah, we got this idea of a prime mover. It is the everything. Is, everything yeah, in the universe is God. We brought it all the way down to not just God, but God. Yeah. And... It's, it's really cool because this thing can be one of many at once, like the Hindus like to look at mm-hmm. it. Um, there can be different expressions of God, you know, thousands of times over for every little thing that can happen in the environment, uh, while there's still being an absolute, ultimate source, you could say. Yeah, and I, I think in... So, so instead of the, the judgmental, jealous idea conception of god because god is well, that was just, necessary for when humans thought at that level old testament was a that. really good explanation of what reality is like it's yeah. like ruthlessly neutral sometimes it floods sometimes yeah. it seems like the gods hate you when they're raining down fire and brimstone on you and so what and, must have i done what, what, what did the, i do what did we do yeah <laughs> yeah we lived in a continuous yeah. cosmos or the but gods then, or, we developed yeah. logic we started breaking things down and we we're like wait a minute God wouldn't be like that. That so God isn't real. But wait, that we there's still something there. What if God is still real? We just got this loaded idea of the word God now, and it's laden with these like cultural motifs of the time in which this idea of the transcendent, like the Christian yeah. form, was was uh, you know it's hard to say invented, but because you know the modern organized church is an outgrowth of Council of Nicaea and these mm-hmm. bishops coming together and pulling all these books together but not certain ones you know yeah. these ones in this order so and I, I, I would have to say if I'm describing ancient Christianity resembled something like the other esoteric mystery schools if, wisdom schools like ancient Buddhism and so Hinduism if and, I was to describe kind of how me personally I describe God most of the time it is the you could call it the secular God, the God of the universe and everything. But then the Christian God that, you know, I believe in, not like the Christian God, white guy with a beard and a pointy finger and all that stuff, but the Christian God is the relationship you have with God. And there's many... With the universe, with the source. There's spirit, many different ways in time all. we have had a relationship with God. I just choose the Christian one because I basically, you know, I, what Jesus was saying to me was, uh, you don't need... 
somebody in between you and God. Yeah. To have that relationship. No, no, Jesus was on point, though. I think yeah. that's what I got out of it most. And that's yeah. how I live my I don't need... Like, it does help. Like, you know, preachers are cool and teachers are cool and all that mm-hmm. stuff is cool. But you don't need that because it's already there. And But they can help sometimes but if, if you, they're good at it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if you want to take it out of the metaphysical sense, well, there's the God the God-sized hole that's always there in us. There is a us, God-sized hole. And we're going to put something in it. We, we, we so what do you put in that God-sized in that hole? And turning things into religions regardless. Which yes, I think is a book do. or a reference to something. Look it up. I'm not good at that stuff, but there's a smarter guy than me who has talked about that. The god The God-shaped hole. hole. God-shaped hole. Who there said that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I forget who that was myself. I've heard that term too. Um, yeah, I believe that. I, and you see every single human culture in history. Sure. Certainly had gods and an explanation uh, successful for the universe. Ones and, and failed ones. A great grandfather and architects. Yeah, the universe. We, yeah. Uh, you know, and we have all believed in gods in one way or another. And now all of our gods are clashing and intermingling, and all of our ways of being, all of our ontologies are coming to mingle well, together. And I, I, well, I think there's, you know, when. So God is growing it Nietzsche, up. It was a Nietzsche that said, you know, we killed God. But yeah. he didn't say it as a good thing. So we went no, through. No, he said it was rec- a bad thing. We went through this trying to tell us recently. He be, said we'll never be finished cleaning up the blood. There may be people old enough now that. Once you kill off the transcendent ideal, even if it was an imperfect packaging of, uh, you know, humans, you know, writing something in a certain way with their own kind of cultural baggage. Being thrown yeah, into the but mix. It, it still was that thing that it was, was still to be shaped into that whole. Realized mind. initially, inspired by something that someone, a human, that touched the transcendent and realized what we all really are, and came back with all of this deep, essential knowledge that is so powerful and and so beautiful, and that we remember thousands of years later. No matter how corrupt the organization of the church itself becomes, even Christ remains uncorrupted. So. Love your enemy. Getting back to to the the statement of us killing God, that happened at a period of time, and Nietzsche saw it, and I know there are people that are still alive that heard firsthand stories from people who lived through those periods of time. So this is very, very, very very recent in our psyche. Yeah. And, like, you know, these old thinkers and philosophers are how many thousands of years, you know, Hundred, you know, a thousand, two thousand, two thousand, whatever. The soft, the soft has turned into now, like the Soviet Union. Well, well now it's China. We still, and our politicians hold on real and quick, media. Though, hold on, real quick though. That stuff had an effect, has an effect on us. It's profound. Now we've gone through something where we killed our God within just right. a few generations of us now, and so this meaning crisis that we're having right now is probably oh, directly from the like. The killing of the concept, or the the concept of the need for God, whether or not ideals, yeah, even yeah, yeah, yeah. the thing that that's greater than the greatest, greater than the greatest, that you know, the highest aspiration, then yeah. then some, hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, you, you don't yeah. need religion to find it, but religion is a path that can help show you how to become wise. We we need wisdom you know? fellowship and yeah. with a with a love, yeah, for that yeah. thing that we were getting into, whether it be wisdom like. Philosophia, being this gathering fellowship of friends with love for wisdom together and practicing this thing called wisdom, how to realize it, not just how to understand it and read about it and be able to comprehend it, but how to be able to actually actualize it, to be it, to live it. 
was very much what we got from the Stoics, yeah. following from Plato. And, yeah. and so Socrates and Pythagoras deeply influenced Plato. We're going to be getting that into the upcoming episodes. But we did get into sophists. The uh, Socrates did not get along no. with the sophists. And that was because they used rhetoric to become powerful and influential, but they weren't necessarily always telling the truth. Yeah, they, they were very effectively and, and bullshitting people. Um, so this new psychotechnology rhetoric becomes increasingly popular because now we're practicing forms of direct democracy. Unfortunately, no woman, no foreigners are allowed. Just these certain powerful men are well, allowed it, to take part. But and even if you remove the it's more, a step forward, the moralistic I, stance of it. If you remove that, it's still logic is work. useful. Well, and it's useful. It's a logical way of managing ourselves. And it's a fair most useful way. when everybody can use logic. But you've got to have wisdom along yeah, with it, right? And you well, and you know, you got to so, have a love for something transcendent that everyone's involved in together yeah, for it to be healthy and which can help. And you have to have ever like I would have to I would say you'd have to have ever increasingly large groups of people that are doing this process, and that's where the sophists like if, if you remove all morality from it, you know, mm -hmm. not allowing women in and foreigners and all that stuff, just for like look at it mechanically using mm -hmm. rhetoric and if you use it for truth and try to include as many people as possible yeah, it becomes a larger distributed network that is getting smarter yeah it, and it get and it's getting smarter the more people you get now mind you you can put little little mind viruses if you will into things yeah. but the more people who independently can use rhetoric for themselves and but yeah, I like that you're talking about having a good motivation for yeah. it because I think that's the, the crux of the whole thing yeah. is that we don't need to try and create new religions per se we don't need what or even upgrade the exist, existing ones besides upgrading ourselves and becoming better Christians or better right. Buddhists you know we ourselves can learn and recognize oh these things were written thousands of years ago they're gonna have some of the cultural baggaging and trappings of their time sure. Some aspects of these things, you know, find the kernels of truth that all people can agree on that we can clearly recognize as good and true for one and all and live up to them. I think that's what we need to be doing with our ancient wisdom traditions and look at them. Uh, yeah, honestly, well, look at them like, like, like they're some really old antique tools that you found. Them. Yeah, judging everything that's different from them yeah. and not yours. You know, it's not, oh, look at everything and let's see what we can put together together. You know, what can. What can we learn? How can our ancient wisdom schools that some of us are still practicing or that we're bringing back now at the Mindfulness Revolution for Baiki presents in episode one that is occurring with this great interest in Eastern mysticism here now in the West and the practice of mindfulness, meditation practices, yoga, so on and so forth. Uh, we are seeing that people are searching. We are see seeking out meaning. The biological organism knows. Evolution well, it's, knows it's, what it it's needs a to survival survive. thing, yeah. you know, like... Isn't it? Not to get too metaphysical, but I think there's also um, this you know, is the way back to God. spiritual evolution, if you will. Um, you know, like the spirit yes. of every every person, but also the spirit of mankind as a species yes. that wants to survive and become more. Mm. And you know, that could just be you know and be better. We want to yeah. be better too. Like you see us, we've become better and better, more docile, yeah. sociable beings over the that, over the eons. And we've become we've better traveled. at thinking. Yeah. analyzing now sometimes too good like where science can lead you sharing co-creating you know the, all the things that we do together and we, we, we don't just hunt together now now we write music together you know we took the skills it took to work together in social environments as packs and tribe 
travel uh, situations and orientations. We have ever sophisticated ways of playing with each other just for f- just pure entertainment now and, yeah. and, and developing social bonds. And this whole time I have us on the small screen huh. while we're talking and huh. chatting away. Hey guys, what's up? So Maybe we'll just at- show our big selves in the beginning and the end yeah. and then we'll like show that we're like watching this thing about John Verbeke in between because... I'm not trying to rob anything from Mr. Verveke here. Well, maybe when, uh, instead of I'll looking watch. at the back of his head. Uh, <laughs> hey! Okay, what are we on? 3938? Yeah, let's go ahead and take a little bit of a, a little bit of a break. Maybe pop on some music real quick. I gotta, I gotta pee and get some more water. And It was 3938. I'm remembering that, but I'm trying to find a funny Verveke face, because you'll get him sometimes. Hey, there we go. Looks like he's about to sneeze. It's a sneeze like a thought calendar out of Hanky. No, you get you gotta let them happen naturally, man. It's one of those things. Yeah, that's all that's good enough. Thirty nine, thirty eight. Did I say thirty eight, thirty eight? He said thirty nine, thirty eight. I did. Okay. Politics right now. The speech goes something like. Yeah. Cool. All right. So we'll get back to this here in about five minutes. Just gonna take a quick break. You guys. Yeah. Feel free to join us. Grab yourself a drink. Get yourself a snack, whatever you need, and we will be back in a jiffy. Go ahead and uh, put on Far Away. Far Away? Okay. Which is like the top, I think. Let's do it.
Oh, we're back, we're back, we're back. Sorry to cut out on the sax solo there. Uh, it, it was just one measure away anyway. Don't resolve it, don't resolve it, damn it, don't resolve. <laughs> it's a running joke in uh, another one of my bands that has a lot of the same people that were in just what you heard, but like, we'll just be jamming and jamming and jamming. And usually you want to do after you're done the progression and you're ending and then everybody hits the last note together. Don't do it. Leave it, you know, last don't, note, let it yeah, hang. Yeah, just let it hang, you know. <laughs> Sometimes that's just the thing, though. Yeah, yeah. All right, so we just had a good break there. I think we're ready to uh, jump back in here now, right? Oh uh, yeah, you want to back them up? Um, yeah, where was what was the last on your notes? Um, Let's see. What but basically, we uh, so, uh, one thing we were talking about when we were outside. Um, oh yeah, something I mentioned. Bullshit. It yeah makes you disoriented um, and distracted from what's true. Mm. They capture you with salience. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 No. Well, that's that. It's the commercial reference, but that's also like, you know, I mentioned like, uh, some of you will know this term, but the like, the wooks at the festival that are really good at saying nothing at all, but they can continually chatter and people are like, yeah, yeah they're funny and whatever, because they'll mention like terms that are salient to, if, say, you go to the festival scene or, and really like any scene has them if you think about it, but wooks are more, most pertinent to me. I hang out with festy people. I'm not a festy person myself, but I enjoy them, but like, they're like, hey, you know, or at the bar is perfect. You know, the guy you can come and just spin you a tail and you don't even care. Like, yeah, you know, you'd be like, oh, yeah, he's got all the stories or whatever. Yeah, the fish was this big. The fish was this big. Well, you don't really care that the fish was probably like that big. But, you know, it's compelling. It's, yeah, it's, you know, making it super salient. And, yeah. and salience depends on where you're at and where you grew up, too. You mentioned, you know, like here in the States, you know, you mentioned baseball. Even though what Kane oh, the said, Simpsons episode, even what, what Kane says yeah. is, I remember when I was a, when I was a young baseball, when not anything baseball. that yeah. that didn't make any sense, didn't even have to. But baseball, freedom, uh, you know, which is yeah, youth, baseball, yeah, America, yeah. freedom, twirling it's around, points, twirling. Yeah. That sounds fun. Yeah. yeah, twirling, twirling towards freedom. Oh, you know, the Simpsons, prophets of their time. That was an ingenious scene. That's definitely our politicians in a nutshell. Oh, well, the whole process, if you ask me, you know, it's like this big fanfare with all the lights and the stage and you know, shining down. Or that WWE style yeah. storytelling. Oh, uh, Kabuki. Kabuki. I'm glad I didn't mess that up because the way to mess that up is not a word I want to say <laughs> on the stream. Yeah. But yeah, the Kabuki Theater, which is like in Kabuki Theater, you're using, you know, grand gestures and very like you know you won't see just the basic mask where somebody's just kind of going it's them oh, going, very expressive you yeah, know, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. so you can see it at a distance but mm -hmm. also the big grand gestures help give you the feeling more than just true yeah. what like because you know like good actors aren't good at acting like normal people good actors are good at acting like what you need them to act like to pull mm -hmm. you into the story mm -hmm. right yeah 
And the ones who are good at acting like normal the people. The ones that are the best actors are the ones that make it true to themselves. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, we've lost some good actors that go too far in that end, yeah. whether mentally or actually, you know, lost. Some them, of them know. know to drop right in and come right back out. Other yeah. ones need to like really stay in the character even in between takes. Yeah, those method so. actors and our uh, what's his name, Christian Bale, like he starved himself uh, for what was that movie? Uh, not Memento. That was like, he, else. he couldn't go to sleep, basically. You know, and it was, yeah, was kind of going really crazy. Been the, mechan- uh, the mechanic, or the, the, the yeah, the mechanic. Yeah. I think it was something like that. Or the mechanist. Oh, the mechanic. Yeah, I, I don't know, but y'all probably know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but, but basically, the, what I'm trying to get at though is like you know, like the throwing yourself so far into this doing it knowledge end of knowing the doing it end of knowing so even our really good actors it goes back to shamanism you know like the the roots mm-hmm. it's not necessarily acting like the deer but he's acting like the guy who hasn't slept in forever and doesn't eat mm-hmm. so in, in order to do that what do i do okay well, well that's i don't procedural. sleep and i force myself not to sleep yeah well procedural so, knowing right well instead of saying well you gotta like you know you gotta live it it's like well how do i do that well in this case it's you starve yourself you don't sleep for mm-hmm. a while you go into the madness as far as you can go without breaking yeah right and that's not even the how you do it that's just me explaining the how you well the hunter just dis- displays yeah. how to do it around the campfire sure. jumping around yeah. the shaman yeah. displays how the animal acts and if you've ever and been to like an acting clinic and stuff like that that's all yeah. all it is is them just that style of storytelling is so deeply embedded yeah. in our survival how we've socialized ourselves to work together in hunting groups and cultivating farming groups that it's part of our psyche now it's how we think we think all of all of our methods are built upon those Mm -hmm. most ancient methods yeah Um, all of our psycho technologies well it's funny so we're up to socrates and the somatic socratic method which is asking questions to draw people out i worked with yes i worked with a theater troupe um, to do some out in the woods Shakespeare and some other plays and what the director would do um, they would be like well okay imagine that you're like pissed off how would you walk if you're pissed off and so and it's just, how would you do this okay like you know how would you feel this and how you know so it's this constant asking the actors questions about it to get them into the mind state to mm-hmm. it was just an interesting an- anecdote but it's an application of the Socratic method in something that's fun and creative, like theater. Help you draw yourself out. Yeah, and draw other people out, too. draw the people, you know, yeah. um, That's what the director's really supposed to do. That, draw, yeah, that's draw the, yeah, out the best help, out He's helping people. you draw your, yourself. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, yeah, just a little interesting stuff. Yeah. All of the, the old wise guys, they, yeah. they got so much useful stuff that you don't even yeah, know you do. The shaman is, is utilizing, like, tricks and things like that to, like, really bring about the reality of the situation, make it super salient to you, yeah. to trigger the placebo effect. Well, the shaman and the hunter were there for that story. The shaman, in the case mm-hmm. of the metaphysical realm, the hunter's nut. They're trying to get other people to be drawn out to know what that is and know what that is like. So right. it's like, every you know, every time you think you get to the edge of what what we do and what we're capable of you see how much more it's connected and how much further it's connected and how much more reach it actually has i think they're trying to get your time. attention there Ooh. yeah yeah what's up brother <laughs> uh but um yeah it's like because like that is the nature of god it's always more so if you get down to the practices around the campfire well you could say well the shaman it, shaman does it so the shaman can have higher understanding. Well, the hunters do it to communicate their hunt. Yeah. But 
who are they communicating it to and who is the shaman helping with this higher understanding while well, he's trying to help everybody else gain this understanding as well. And then their stories that they tell to their children, that their children tell to their children. So it, it go, the net is much wider that's being cast here with these, I won't say simple, simple mechanisms we've developed, but these simple enough for our brain through yeah. traditions and biology can hold There's on to simple it to learn, but without us realizing it. can use in extremely complex yeah. ways. Yeah. Yeah, because our brain is so good at exacting one use into another over and over and over again, like the tongue to be able to taste and check for poison and things well, like now that. Now we're exacting. Now we're using it. Old, old tech, like older technologies. Mm -hmm. of, um, uh, what, what do you call them? Now? The psychotechnologies. Psycho, we're, yeah, we're exacting old psychotechnologies mm -hmm. into new things as well. And we're seeing this through, you know, the old grades like Socrates was taking from the natural, the natural philosophers and everybody who's led up to them and going the next step further mm -hmm. and, introducing and, something new yeah. from the, from the, the conglomeration of insights yeah. from all these different and, people and while the word and philosophy sprouts more is sophistry plus Sophia, to remove yeah, wisdom yeah, yeah to, to 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 remove you know the decrepit natures of sophistry you just add the the love. connective love force yeah. of a the community oriented yeah community oriented Which love that's the way you take that's the way you take the power back not to quote uh, yeah. you know a great band but um that's really how you take the power back it's not a power of force of arms it's a power of force of will and reason and how to think yes. and that's why socrates is a very dangerous man and exactly. a lot more thinkers after him and we will um go on let the yeah, let let continue I dreamt of being a baseball, but now we must move forward, not backwards, upwards, twirling, twirling towards freedom. And everybody cheers. No, it's meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. But he invokes youth, baseball, moving forward, moving upward, twirling, and freedom. And so if you're an American, you get this rush. You get this rush. That rush is... These are all salient things. They're highly relevant to you. You associate and identify with them. And so you're swept up. You're caught up in it. Now, why does bullshit matter? Well, part, as I said at the beginning, part of the way people articulate the meaning crisis is there's so much bullshit and it seems to be increasing. We are separating relevance and salience from truth. But there's a deeper reason, and I think this is part of why it matters to Socrates. Look, you can't, although we use this metaphor for self-deception, it's actually not a good metaphor. You can't lie to yourself. It makes no sense. Cognitive psychologists have been pointing, and philosophers have been pointing this out. You can't know, not pee, and then say to yourself, but pee, but pee. The trouble is, you know that this is not the case, and so simply stating this to yourself doesn't do anything. You can't lie to yourself because you're in possession of the truth. Did I just prove to you that self-deception is impossible? No, not at all. See, you can't lie to yourself, but here's what I would argue. You can bullshit yourself. Why? Because lying has to do with believing. I'm going to come back to this again and again. Look, Believing isn't something you directly do. 
Here, I'll show you. Pick a belief you would like to have. I would like to have the belief that everybody loves me. I don't believe that, but I would like to truly have that belief. So what should I do? I should just believe, believe. You see televangelists doing this, telling people, believe. But you can't. You can hope that everybody loves you. You can wish that everybody loves you. But if I say, believe it, you can't do it. That's not how belief works. It's not a voluntary action. You can't lie to yourself. See, self-deception works in a different way. You know what you can do? You can bullshit yourself. How can you bullshit yourself? Because what you can do is direct your attention. If I say, pay attention to this finger, you can. And you can also choose to pay attention to something. Now, attention, and we'll talk about this later, and it's how central it is, there's two sides to attention. You can direct your attention. For example, if I say, your left big toe, you're paying attention to it, and suddenly it's salient to you. When you pay attention to something, it makes it more salient. It stands out for you. But you know what else? Attention can also be direct, not only be directed by you to make things more salient, your attention can be caught. A sudden noise. And you turn. And you attend to it. It was salient, and it captures your attention. So not only can you direct your attention, your attention can be captured by what you find salient. And notice what this means you can do. You can direct your attention to something and make it more salient. And because it's more salient, it will tend to capture your attention. And because you're paying attention to it, you make it more salient, which means it will more likely capture your attention. Do you see what's happening here? These two things feed on each other. I pay more attention to it, it becomes more salient. It becomes more salient, it gathers my attention. I pay more attention to it, I'm more likely to be attracted to it. And it spins on itself in a self-organizing manner until your attention is attached to something. It's super salient to you. It's highly relevant to you. And you lose the capacity to notice other things. That's how you bullshit yourself. The salience and the catchiness of the stimulus has overtaken any concern you have for whether or not it's true or represents reality. This is how you deceive yourself. So do you see, that's why Socrates is going to be so antagonistic towards the sophists. They are the opposite, the opposite of the axial revolution. They are the opposite of that rational self-knowledge, the attempt to overcome self-deception. The sophists are promoting bullshit. And when you promote bullshit, you not only promote the deception of others, you make yourself more vulnerable to self-deception. You fall more and more prey to self-deception. So, the natural philosophers are truth without relevance. The sophists and their propensity for the pro promotion of bullshit represent relevance disconnected from truth. So notice here, they have the power to transform people. But they've disconnected it from the pursuit of the truth. These people can give us knowledge 
of the facts, but do not facilitate self-transformation. What Socrates wanted is he wanted both. He wanted individuals who knew how to pay attention in such a way that what they found salient helped them determine the truth. And that the truth that they found helped them to train their attention to find salience. Socrates wanted something like that. So what he would do is he would go about questioning people, maddening frustration. So Socrates would come up to somebody and say, well, what are you doing here? And, oh, I'm in the marketplace. Well, why are you in the marketplace? Well, I'm purchasing something. Well, why are you purchasing something? Well, I want to get these goods. Well, why do you want these goods? Because they'll make me happy. And then, then Socrates starts to, oh, so you must know what happiness is. Well, happiness is pleasure, Socrates, I guess. And these things give me pleasure. But is it possible, Socrates would ask, to have pleasure and still find yourself in a horrible situation that you really dislike? Well, of course, Socrates, that's possible. Oh, so then happiness isn't pleasure. You're being coy with me. Tell me, tell me, Socrates would say. What is happiness? Oh, it's, you know, it's getting what's most important to you. Well, that means that you have to have knowledge. Is it any kind of knowledge? Well, no, it's the knowledge of what it, what's important. What's truly important or what you only think is important? I guess what's truly important, Socrates. Okay, so what's that knowledge of what's truly important called? I guess that would be wisdom, Socrates. Oh, so in order to be happiness, to find happiness, you must have first cultivated wisdom. Tell me how you cultivate wisdom and what wisdom is. And the person goes, ah, they collapse. They get to this point where they can't answer. They fall into a state called aporia. P people compared it to being stung by a stingray or falling under a magician's spell. You don't know what's going on. Now here's what... Now, one, one, one thing you might say is, well, Socrates is just a skeptic. He's trying to show people that they don't know anything because he wants to show that the gods are right, that nobody has any wisdom, etc. That's too simple. I think something more sophisticated is going on with Socrates. Right? Socrates is trying to get you to realize he's like, he's like incarnating the axial revolution. He's trying to get you to realize how much, how much each one of us, myself included, how much we're bullshitting ourselves all the time. Why? Because we pursue things. We find things salient to us. Their happiness, fame, it's salient to us, and we're pursuing it. We're putting our efforts into it way before we understand it, way before we grasp the truths of it. We are always making ourselves susceptible to bullshit because we are being driven by powerful motivations that are salient to us that are greatly in excess of our understanding of their truth or reality. We are always, all of us, bullshitting ourselves. And the point about, and what that does is that provokes a reaction in people. It goes one of two ways. People either go, ah, and they don't want to be showing that about themselves, and they become angry at Socrates, or some people have an insight. They realize, oh, oh, I need to transform myself. I need to find a way to keep 
relevance and truth tracking each other, enabling each other. And when Socrates realized that he was having this effect on people, he had his answer to his dilemma. He knew how it was that the gods were not lying and he was the wisest of human beings. His answer was the following. He knew what he did not know. And we all say, I know what I don't know. I'm ignorant of a lot of things. No, 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 no. He knew in a way that allows you to directly, painfully confront your capacity for bullshitting yourself. To really realize what you do not know is to realize, I'm pursuing her, and I don't know what's going on. I'm pursuing that, and I don't know what's going on. That's what he's talking about. Now, many people think that Socrates just concluded that that's it. He didn't know anything. No, that's not what Socrates is talking about. Socrates does claim to know things. You can imagine how Socrates pisses people off. So he's put on trial. In ancient Athens, there isn't a state that arrests you. One, one citizen accuses another. You're brought on trial. You're put in front of 500 men. It's always men, remember? Very, very, very chauvinistic society. And then the accuser presents their case, the defendant presents their case, and then they, the jury votes on it. So Socrates was accused by people that he pissed off of, of atheism, which doesn't mean not believing in gods, it just means teaching strange gods. Because as I mentioned, he was concerned to make the gods moral exemplars. Now when Socrates is on trial, it becomes clear that they will let him go if he sort of agrees to stop doing this philosophy stuff that he's doing, stops pissing people off. And then he utters something that's very famous. And this is a statement of him deeply knowing something. He says, the unexamined life is not worth living. A life in which there is no effort made to put these two together is a life that is not worth living because it is a life, to use our terms, that is a wash and bullshit that is beset by self-deception and self-destructive behavior. So Socrates knows what makes a life meaningful. There's a kind of wisdom. Wisdom is to keep your truth machinery and your relevance machinery tightly coupled together so that you don't bullshit yourselves. See, Socrates famously claimed to know ta erotica. We're going to have to talk about this later because it comes from erotic, and for most of us, all you hear when you hear erotic is sexual. That's not what eros means, right? It's a more, much more broader term in ancient Greece. What Socrates means is he knows how to love well. And it, that, that doesn't mean romantic love. What it means is Socrates knows what to care about. He knows how to keep what he cares about with what's real. He would do things like walk into the marketplace and say, look at all the things I don't need. He'd say, how much time did you spend on uh, fixing your hair this morning? Oh, about 20 minutes. How much on fixing yourself? Socrates knew what to find significant, what to find important. He knew how to properly care. He also compared himself to a midwife. He knew how to take that caring and that sense 
of what makes life meaningful, the cultivation of wisdom, and help people draw out, give birth to their better self. That's why he compared himself to a midwife. This is what he knew. Socrates knew how reason and love go together. You might find it sort of entertaining to know that Frankfurt, who I mentioned a few minutes ago, wrote a book called Reasons for Love, where he also puts together reason and love, things that we have been taught to keep as antithetical to each other. For Socrates, separating them, which our culture regularly and reliably does, is one of our greatest follies. They need to be interdependent and intertwined with each other. We need to rationally know what we should most care about. So Socrates is put on trial. He's found guilty. He just narrowly loses. So then after losing... And it looks like part of the reasons were political and part of them he's pissed off the powerful and all kinds of things. And he associated with people that turned out to be corrupt. But he, he loses by a very narrow margin. And then what happens is each side proposes a penalty. The accusers propose death, that Socrates should be killed. And then this tells you something about Socrates. Socrates says the following. Practicing philosophy has cost me. I have to constantly work at it. It's very demanding. I'm not right, wealthy. I'm dependent on other people. Uh, people attack me. It's been very risky. The worst penalty could be for me to continue doing philosophy. And in order to make that even worse, the government should give me free housing and free food for the rest of my life. So as you can imagine, <laughs> this pisses everybody off. And Socrates is found... Uh, in a much greater vote, he's condemned to death. Now notice Socrates is so convinced that he has the right kind of know thyself, not autobiographical, but this that I've been talking about. He knows how he works and how to train it to transform it so that he cares well and reduces his capacity for self-deception, that he's willing to die for it. He finds that meaning so important that he's willing to die for it. Now, he's a very interesting figure for that reason. But there's also other important things we should know about Socrates. The, the shamanic is still in Socrates because he could do the following. He could stand in one place for 24 or even 48 hours meditating on his own thoughts. He was terrifically capable of controlling his body's physiological reactions. He could drink a lot without getting drunk. He could go into battle in winter without any right? Shoes on his feet. He was famously brave. So, he, And he had this divine voice. Whenever he was about to do something wrong, he'd hear this voice that would tell him, don't do it, Socrates. So once again, you still find, right, the shamanic has been carried into the Socratic in really important ways. We're going to talk about later how those two are interwoven together. Now, Socrates has many followers, but there's one person who was present at the trial but wasn't present at his death when he drinks the hemlock, 
And you know what? I got to sit in the spot in, in, in Athens that corresponds to where Socrates was probably imprisoned. At least that's what they said. That person who was present at the trial and even offers to pay for Socrates' release, but is ill and not present at his death, is Plato. And Plato, as I've foreshadowed, is going to take Pythagoras and Socrates and put them together and advance even more significantly the axial revolution in ancient Greece. Thank you very much for your time. around. I know we wanted to go back to that picture, so I'm going to find that. I think it's around 55 minutes. Around here somewhere. Yeah, it's just interesting. So I, I will call Socrates' last... Uh, not only how the thing is... If you will. Um, I'm not sure what it's called. I'm not that much of an art nerd, but there's some... And if we can't find it, it's fine. Um, if in their own time, they want to look up the photo. It's the thumbnail for this video, so, or for his video. Is it now? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, we want a bigger version than that, if we can find it. Uh, 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 probably won't see it because it won't be one of the highlighted things. <laughs> but anyway, I guess the importance in it is he's sitting there, he's holding court, if you will, with his group of followers. And keep looking and make for vacant, make faces. Uh, yeah. And then there's the mat, you know, what I would assume is, you know, whatever the equivalent of the magistrate is discussing whatever is like through the hallway, rendering the verdict. And he's mm -hmm. having his last lesson and everybody's shattered. And you notice he's not shattered. And then there's a few uh -huh. people that you can see, like, you know, a worried understanding, but still an understanding nonetheless. But there's you know, people broken and. Yeah, and I, 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 I assume that's just a summation of what dealing with him would be like if you're learning from him. He's just blowing your mind over and over again. He's either pissing you off and shattering your world or shattering your world in another way. You're like, or he's oh, waking you up in a positive way and you're like, I'm yeah. going to transform yeah. and hang out with this guy more because he's got a way of looking at things that I've never heard and it's yeah. making me feel better the more I apply what he suggests or talks about or helps me see. Well, that profound realization feeling... You know, you get when something hits you really personally, and it's just like the aha, but then the responsibility of now that you know, it's on mm. you to do it. Yeah, it's inspiring. And I don't know how I can't find it. Uh, it's okay. I've, I've gone right by it a couple times. It, it's it's a very famous painting. You can find it. If I was more of a art nerd, like my... But yeah, Plato's there, was, like... You know, he's just with, with discussing it, leaning back, you know, relaxing, all cool. Oh, he's, he's the one laying back. There's yeah. different people reacting in different ways. Yeah, and then there's the guy in the hallway that's just, oh, like, heartbroken. Or they want to find him. <laughs> Anyways. But, uh, yeah, he was... Uh, probably why a lot of people still to this day really look up to him. He was the 
the OG of the, I'm going to say it even if it gets me killed, you know. Mm-hmm. The patron saint of all mm-hmm. those, the, the rebels with the cause, if you will. Even Plato, you know. Yeah, he did not like that the, so- that the sophists were using knowledge and tricks to, you know, expand, increase the salience of something in order to capture people's attention and cause them to bu- be able to bullshit them or cause them to bullshit themselves. And really just furthering their own position. You know how dangerous it was if you didn't have yeah. the philia with the Sophia. Well, because then you don't care about other people. And, you know, like, if you have mm. great knowledge without caring about people, just, like, you know, look at the atrocities we've done medically to people and stuff, you know, it's like... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so the sophist <laughs> has the power to to transmit relevance over truth instead of truth. They can just transmit something that make it super salient, seem super relevant. And then the more that you look at that yep. and believe in it, that's recursive. So you, you start to look at other things even less and less so and less. So would it be accurate to say that um, the, legacy, the legacy media have become the sophists of our oh, modern day? Oh, for sure, day? yeah. I mean, everybody knows that uh, like politicians <laughs> in general are snakes and that yeah. the news media is also... But now yeah. it's gotten to the point where like very, everything very is hyper salient. They they show we've got vivid imagery now. Like you mm-hmm. can you can see you can see things in high def three D mm-hmm. um, super salient all the time, and you can play music in the background yeah. that Salience gets you in the feels. A captures way. attention. That's yeah. what yeah, yeah. That's what he said. It captures your attention. yeah, like with, uh, the and your attention. So your attention can be directed yeah. sure. by something. So like while we're talking right now, if something fell over, we would be like, what was that? Because the honk just, outside, yeah. or even saw like fl- flashing blue and red lights, but right. like, that would be cop. If you saw just red lights, then that would be you know yeah. like Maybe even just or, the stimulus, yeah. just a very small amount of stimulus, and then you focus in, hone in. Yeah, yeah. So it's very good to learn how to be attentive and to stay focused on something, and to not over focus too, because the whole scene. Would well, it be able to seeing the deer in the wood out as much as you can go mm-hmm. in? Is is what the Philia Sophia thing is? That's why. So there's a community orientation. Yeah. The word philia being like friendship or fellowship and love. So that is what he wanted to have with wisdom, a fellowship with love mm-hmm. of information and knowledge. Yeah, and, and, and so self-knowledge was so naturally important. a distributing way, you know, because it, it, yeah. it's the other, so, you know, bullshit feels good and, you know, self-deception and all that and self-aggrandizement feels good. But you know what else feels good? The general love of like coming to conclusions with people, like as you're doing and that feeling like, yeah, it's like. It's actually like remember it's when you're a kid and finding the solution together. Yeah. And when you were a kid yeah. you'd have like good play sessions where it's like you do stuff and it's fun and, and I guess in the physical sense you were learning these these things physically. Yeah, accomplishing but as adults now when it's a little harder to run around and stuff, if you use your mind and you play, that's another form of play. Like and I don't mean like, you know, serious I'm not, I'm not degrading philosophy. Developmental I'm play uplifting must continue play. throughout. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like you play, you play with an idea. Oh, there's a metaphor mm-hmm. for you. It's like, ah, oh, you know, we play with this. Let me bounce this idea off you. Well, you know, you're kind of like playing catch. Oh, yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I throw an idea to you. You toss yeah, it back. Yeah, yeah. Right. So we know that attention can be directed. And Socrates was looking for people in his questioning and his Socratic method. He was looking for people that can utilize salience to help realize truth and aid of truth. And that's what he was trying to help popularize because he saw that there's something bad happening, that this wasn't going to be good. So sophistry is incredibly powerful. Yeah. And, and if dangerous. this is used without any kind of moral sense or wisdom, then 
it will take over the world and will basically be run by the assholes. It will be run by the greediest and, and lowliest of Yeah, others. and not just the assholes, but like the most... The evolutionaries. The, the most that are, manipulative that are, that are the best at yeah. being that way. Yeah. So it's kind of like you got to... You got to come up with something better so we don't go down that road because once that road is infested with those kinds of brutes, they are very hard to get up, you know, get mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like, hey, we dodged a bullet on that one. Well, uh, thanks, man. Yeah, uh, back in ancient Greece, you know, <laughs> people put Socrates on trial. He really antagonized the sophists. Uh, he got on pretty well with the natural philosophers, but he saw that they also were falling short on how does this help us realize wisdom and help me be was, a better person. I think if it was more of you know, Sophistry was like, you yeah. guys are misusing yeah. knowledge and, and the salience of things in order to trick people. Yeah. And, and trick yourselves. And so, you know, anyways, yeah, Socrates goes on trial. And for atheisms, for strange gods, for the promulgation and popularization of strange gods. And yes. strange gods that he was talking about were he was making the existing gods into moral exemplars of truth and virtue. And they didn't like that. They didn't oh, want no, that of people. not. Yeah, they, no, they didn't. Because then they'd have guys, to stop lying the well, way they were. Well, yeah, they'd, have to, they'd have to hold themselves people. to a higher level if they're supposed to have any, you know, like... Yeah. If your reasoning is tied into, well, the gods are like this, so we should be like this because we're emulating the gods... Well, if your gods are perfect, then you have to you have to be a pretty good person now, don't you? Oh, well, we can't have that. Can't, we can't be good people. We have, just have to convince people we're good people. You know, it's like, yeah. And that's way easier than being a good person. Well, then, it's laziness, like too. Sophistry is laziness. Yeah. Because well, it is mentally lazy, you unfortunately. Just, They're not trying to actually do the hard work of yeah. acquiring real self-knowledge, recognizing where one's weaknesses are to these powerful forces. That and sometimes that means that drive you're, us. you're not yeah. going to get to the top of the pile because you might realize that being on the top of the pile well, ain't that great either. It's it's one way of surviving. It's not the one that got humanity to where we are now. It was our love, our ability to coexist, co-create, to socialize together in very sophisticated sure. ways well, that allows so. us to be able to build whole communities that get along well enough to yeah. survive for long well, I think the sophist at this point in time is like, you know, so you'd have the... The sophist the can natu- gain power the natural and philosoph- that system over and again. Well, so you'd have the natural philosophers, and then the next step would be philosophy as in, like, Socrates. But right. then there's this weird tangent offshoot that took techniques that were developing and tried to make a radical change. You know, you could, you could, you know, you could compare that to... Well, I'm not going to try to use it for good, though. Well, what I'm saying is, though, the the sophists were an offshoot opposed to a direct inline step. Mm -hmm. They were tangential opposed to directly. So uh, they were just one side of the equation. Yeah, right, and not even an important one. And if you went, if if it so the path bifurcated, and it was either go to philosophy, which saw. But the benefits of being able well, to... Well, he knew the bifurcation would then bifurcate and bifurcate and bifurcate. Yeah, and yeah, cause yeah, and mid division in the so world. So, which branching off do you want to go on to? And we're lucky we got the Socrates end because we'd be in way worse conditions with the way we have Well, we still remember now. Socrates. That's good. But, yeah. yeah, the sophists do definitely run the game. Yeah. But the very thing that Socrates wanted to stop had, did happen. Yeah. But he survived in the other wisdom well, schools, did survive, seeds. and we're remembering them, and it was hard for us to forget them, well, because while they were hidden or underground or hard to find initially, um, now we have the internet and everything's uncovered and open and available and traveling very quickly. Well, sometimes the same old questions are that being asked. Wisdom, it's hard to stamp out. Yeah, and while you can find it again on it's your own. It's hard to stamp out the truth. 
you know, like we have people. So something that's very compelling and true lasts over time, yeah. and people will remember it, even if they can't write it down and store it. And they'll, then they'll write it down again later when it's safe. Well, you gotta, you gotta make good weeds. You can't get rid of love, man. You gotta make good weeds. Weeds, everybody cuts them down, thinking they're horrible, they're impossible to get rid of, but they're actually all medicines. Yeah. So, be be the weeds in your yard. Yeah. Um, you know those seeds, yeah. even if they even if they try to take you out, you still continue to keep the. Like my yard looks great because it's mostly weeds by the way it's super lush and green uh you know gotta keep your yard green by incorporating the good healthy medicinal weed we could be growing gardens in all of our yards yeah yeah so yeah socrates would ask us you know how not how much he would ask somebody how much time did you spend on your hair today yeah and it'd be like 20 minutes and he's like how much time did you spend on yourself on improving yourself and so he had this way of help of how of Helping others realize wisdom, and he called himself, um, what did he say, a midwife? Yeah, delivering, you know. So he knew how to properly care about what mattered, what was important. Um, they did not like, so yeah, they tell him to stop doing what he's doing. Stop spreading your philosophy, and if you don't, then we're going to kill you. <laughs> and yeah, so. that that was basically what they decided ultimately. Um, but when they told him to stop, first he says no. The unexamined life is not worth living. No. And so that's just like a quote that we hear nowadays that we everybody knows actually. Everyone's yeah. heard that quote that unexamined life is not worth living. If you haven't heard it, it's pretty commonly known. And you probably heard you probably heard something quote. like that. He said this or, while he was on yeah. trial in the moment. And to the demand that, well, you know, you stop and we'll let you go. No, the unexamined life is not worth living. It, I, I would be in this world of bullshit again. Yeah, right. You know, fooling myself, lying to myself. I wouldn't be free. I wouldn't be ha truly happy. Um, it's what, you know, being able to look within and know thyself is what makes life meaningful. And so that was his meaning of life. Um, to love well. To, to understand his inconsistencies to know himself as fully as he could so that he really understood how to how to be a good person in the world and what to care about and what to keep with what was most real what to support and yeah, so so he had these reasons of love and yeah we, we are set we, the problem that we cause that's causing the meaning crisis is where Banky says is that we are separating the Philia and the Sophia yeah. the rational um, what we need is a rational knowing what to care about and how to care for it rationally, not just the rational. Well, it seems like, yeah, like literally it's like, you know, not just blind, naive care for everything, like equally either. You got to like say, well, some things are better and more conducive to long-term survival. Well, you got to be descriptive because like, yeah. you know, like we've got lots of movements that are like, care about this and care about this and care about this. And then they suddenly care about so many things that doesn't. They're not actually caring they're about just saying anything that they care anymore, about too. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, the word so discrimination... We, we, want to we want to signal that we're virtuous people, but we don't know how to be virtuous. Yeah, and, and well, the, it, not, the one thing is, is to be virtuous nowadays, it's like, well, you can't have any type of discriminate, discriminatory attitudes about anything because the word discrimination has a bad rap. But no, you do. Like, you know, you need to discriminate, like, what kind of food you need to eat, because, sure. like, you can't, oh, it's the you're problem having trouble with cheese and shit. And, yeah. and racial identity, well, but, but, identitarianism. Yeah, but, well, we know what the problem is. I'm, I'm not getting onto the problem, the, the problem yeah. of it. I, I'm, I'm getting into, we need to be able to discriminate between 
what we, like you said, what we should be caring about and not, and then have the passion and put the passion and the love into that because that's you, what we need to do. And you yeah. need to know what you're putting it into instead of yeah. just like some fate, like, you know, I was just listening to something on this today. Yeah. yeah. Cause, Cause we can get stuck looking at all the matters of what's wrong in the world. Um, but you really, you know, to, the only way to change them is to actually be doing what's right. And yeah. Socrates got to the core of it. Like how to be a good person in the world, how to be better together and lovers of wisdom and what's true so that we can discover what is good and what it all together. Lovers of wisdom and, and not hoarders of knowledge. Yeah, not That's, just hoarders of knowledge yeah. for knowledge's sake, for yeah, some yeah. sense of self-survival. Well, there's I've talked about this on the podcast. We, we can operate, as Bill Hicks said, through eyes of fear or eyes of love. How are we orienting ourselves to the world? Are we living according to a fear-ridden orientation? So everything that we do is from that place of anxiety and concernable. And that's no place to try or to... are we doing yeah. it from what... From the level of what could be by being more loving and bright and beautiful well, I guess together in the world. The scientific way to answer that is what creates the more salient result. <laughs> uh, because, well, like in the fearful end, like your brain does not work. It, it can't create realness, if you will. It's it, like, I, I think one of the things about horror movies, like the best horror movies, kind of keep you a little confused. Mm hmm. So you don't sure. know what's real. Like, I think it was the first episode got into, like, you know, what is true horror is not knowing what's real. Not being able to, like, a mask is so, very scary to us because you can't see the expression on the person's face. You don't know what they look like. You can't see any features. It's murky. So the other end of that is yeah. really knowing what's real is, I guess, you mm -hmm. know, what's real and what is real. The truth will set, you, will set you free. That is the super salient. That is super real and super real. So it's like... It feels real than real transcendent experiences. So maybe not, you know, just salience, but like, you know, what direction are you going? What are you trying to achieve? Well, we should be trying to achieve which maximizes the growth of our social cognitive yes. networks. Yes. As that's opposed a, that's to what great... minimizes the growth. Like, that's the problem with the sophists and why it was a really bad route to well, go down. Well, yeah, a wise use, loving use of our yeah, distributive yeah, cognitive exactly. networks. Because they're using distributive Oh, yeah, well, yeah. And, and nowadays, they're real they're, good. They have conglomerations. They can control yeah, the network media agencies have these conglomerations. Sure, yeah. yeah, sure. So, <laughs> yeah, of course. So, yeah, yeah, Socrates was was trying to figure out how do I help create more people that can use salience to help realize truth. I think that's what you're getting at there. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's what we need to do in this yeah. time is to ourselves become sure. lovers of truth, celebrators of truth, and find ways of conveyance of truth that are salient for people. Yes. And, you know, and, and that's where artists come in. That's like the Terrence McKenna quote that. Uh, the, it's the artist's task to save the soul of mankind, essentially over and again. Yeah. And anything less is a dithering while Rome burns. Well, why do the you artist think is the only one that knows how to go into the unknown, is willing to go into the unknown, and then bring back something useful. And why do you think they're willing to be, you know, poor and, you know, like a starving <laughs> right. artist? Yeah. You know, yeah, it's, it's down to, you true. know, what um, Socrates. Because because you're in you're in an active give and take reciprocal relation with life. We're back into the continuous cosmos. Mm -hmm. The artist is demonstrating and sharing with us, just like the hunter dancing around the fire or the instructor teaching you how to do something. Mm -hmm. They're all helping us become part of a movement, an understanding of something. And being a part of the continuous cosmos, recognizing how we inform 
the nature of reality and how the nature of reality informs and enhance us. the beauty of said reality carry the beauty forward as, yeah, my, yeah. as my great friend gary yeah yeah, yeah yeah so you know that's the co- that's the constant cosmos part it's not just artists that. i mean it's teachers it's well, lovers and you can be working well, behind the counter at a gas station frankly if you're doing that and you're doing it right you're an doing. artist you know if it like and what we should all be artists of life or we can yeah, be at least sure, you have the capacity yeah. to be to make of life an art our lives well, I, I, like take, like being of service, like butlers and stuff like that. They go to school for that, and it's an art, and it's like up, it's up there, and that's just being of service. So that's like bad boys. Mm-hmm. If you're a bad boy or bad girl or a bad day, be the best bag individual that you can possibly be, and you know, like any task you have, do the do the best you can. Be an artist of that task. The artist yeah. is just the one that makes it. Um, Think of inspirational like and, Japan. Japanese culture and Zen culture and everything is a ritual even like the pouring of the tea and everything is a ritual how you hand your money to somebody mm-hmm. you know uh, not with one hand but two because rituals over time showing but uh, yeah and well rituals imbue things with meaning I'm glad you life. brought up rituals this time around because I, I was thinking about this for the past few days you know like what's going on in the world and like how to recognize these problems for what they are and describe them as we're losing a lot of our, not just our trade rituals, how we deal with strangers, but also our, our rituals on how we reform or prove loyalties within, you know, in-group, if you will. Like, we don't, we don't have, you know, say, like, oh, rituals. Ceremonies we don't really have that anymore. But then also, it's like, we, we still have a little bit of, like, vestiges of them. Little vestiges of them, but even... But we need that back. We, these are things that we well, should be redeveloping. We should, if, if we're going to go start bringing things back, we should also try to figure out how to create rituals that allow us to more readily ingratiate the stranger into a community, into the community, mm-hmm. to offer, you know, like, because it can't just be, you know, there are the travelers and traders that are coming through and we don't know them. But then we know our own people, but we have to deal with them. So we kind of know. No, it's like we need to develop ones. Is now that we're at like a you know hyper global community, we yeah, I can talk to somebody on the other side of the planet right now if yeah. I wanted to. In yeah, we are time. Yeah, we are right now at this very moment. Um, so the 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 concept of stranger is almost losing a little bit of salience, and it needs to still have salience because it needs to stay safe. You know, like stranger danger and all that, but. We're at an impasse right now with in, the in-group, out-group trust and preference mechanism that we have for survival mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. us dealing with our level of technology and communication now where strangers no longer has really a physical distance separating us. It's more of a point of view or mm-hmm. yeah. whether we've met and developed a relationship or mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. And so we need rituals to be able to deal with that and be able to have those types of relationships that are very distant yet still can be very close. Sure. Yeah. Because um, now distance isn't you know like somebody does They don't have to travel yeah. months in order. Well, to especially get to, with you know, VR or like HD sure. communication, yeah. we're sounding and, and able to see each other more clearly. We're picking up more of our social cues because yeah. we have more high definition of every yeah. tiny little micro muscle movement yeah. becoming extra apparent. But yeah, I was, yeah. I was just thinking about, you know, rituals and like past mm-hmm. episodes and it's just like, you know, that's one thing 
we're, we've got the vestiges of old ones, but we need to now figure out ri good rituals to bridge between the initiative rituals between in-groups, whatever the in-group is. Like, I don't know if you have an anime sure. preference yeah. or if you're a sports fan or whatever, but with the, well, how do you get other people into your in-group? Or at least well, enough getting beyond so the idea of like in group and out group and our th very psyche and our very thinking is one of the problems. Like, how do you get to that? Uh, first, initially, it's going to be one at a time. One. That's like, one at a time, and then you do the things you're talking about in your own community. That's like back before and your own family. Level. You yeah, do it within your own man. family. Yeah. You start bridging those gaps, and then and taking different orientations well, maybe and not ways of interacting within your own community. Maybe not getting rid of in group. Yeah, we do have to get to an orientation of all life. Because we can is precious. But, All life is sacred. Well, here, here, that should be an I'm underlying gonna, notion. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop that you. we have to. That I, I'm just suggesting this is ultimately where we're hoping to get to. A I, I don't. I don't know, man. Like you can't. You can't get rid of it, and I don't think you should because it is something. Get that rid of what the in group out group. Uh, uh, mechanism. I'm just saying the orientation that we are taking. I think we should learn to recognize what of it is. Of course, you're not going to lose it. It's and, built in genetically. Well, you know how to identify well, something that's different. Than but you. that's why. That's why. Whether I'm, it looks has different hair. Well, different no, speech no. pattern, different clothing. Hold on one second. But that's why we shouldn't strive to you know get rid of it. You should be able to recognize it for what it is. Yeah, I'm not saying you get rid of it. I'm saying but, you do the opposite of it, which is what Verbeke is suggesting. Yeah. You do the opposite of the bad thing. You don't do the. You don't try and like resist the bad thing or get rid of it or push it away. You just do more of the good. So, the, so I'm saying there's an well, alternative orientation you, humanity can take that we have the capacity to through the through recognize love, it for what it is, the unconditional, and then how to use it to the wisdom further the gathering of people. Yes, because in order to actually realize that a stranger, a stranger, and, and yeah. should be brought in is to first have this say angry well i'm saying yeah i mean just every every stranger is part of the sacred fundamental nature of yeah. reality it's yeah. something that deserves love every all life deserves love and deserves enlightenment so you just approach so we make that a fundamental thing that we teach our children we teach this in our wisdom schools we make this more of an orientation so we're not so ruled by the leisure brain activity that does the in-group, out-group thing. But not all of Of us, course, the differentiation is there. It's useful to but an extent. Not all, of us are gonna, not all of us all at once are going to be doing that. No, of course not. I'm not saying that no, we should I, just I, do I'm this. I'm not saying I'm you, saying I, this is I'm how, not, how we begin I'm not change. saying you are either, but like we do also have to teach how to... You know, it's like martial arts. You don't just learn martial arts to move and feel. Oh good. yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I'm not saying you don't that. teach it. You got to, you got to know how to combat with it as yeah. well. Because like, um, what's the term? Uh, free rider, like in societies, like you can the, love somebody while being able to oh, sure. joust with well, them, fight with them, even yeah. war with them. Actually, and I'm just saying that this is yeah. a fundamental golden rule thing that we forgot to teach our children yeah. that we're not operating in the orientation most of us aren't even aware that we have those in-group out-group preferences as biological mechanisms built in to survive just like the ego no they're just acting it's according just to them rules you and if you yeah. can't point to the thing and talk about the thing and understand the thing it's going to do its thing oh no of and course I, and that's why i'm saying yeah. look so always at the bottom of everything is eyes of love and eyes of fear are we using the wisdom of unconditionality no preference to look at the world so that we can put ourselves in every single different perspective we can possibly imagine and take on so we can see from the widest number of perspectives other people's shoes so we can know how to interact with them. If you teach that kernel of the truth of yeah. how to be loving towards it, towards yeah, you should love all life, yeah. but that doesn't mean that you let yourself get hurt or disrespected. You love the alligator, so but the alligator but might not love just you. To, <laughs> just to start with the basics, yeah. we forgot how to love. 
We don't even know what yeah. love is. We certainly don't know what Christ was talking about when he spoke of unconditional love. Sure. And that's the thing that actually every kid does have the capacity for, and it easily takes on when you give them love. Um, that dogs as well, you know, and, yeah, and, and animals. And so ones that have become domesticated and lived with us for a while at least. Uh, but love gets you a long way. So as, lo as long as we have that orientation, you'll have the wisdom to see that, okay, this person that's operating under an in-group, out-group percept yeah. perception with a sense of pr preference to the point of being willing to do evil well, to the other. Well, the sophists, and I think we should learn, lost, and you can learn see their that. techniques yeah. so you know how to shield yourself from it. Because just because yeah. you know the nature of, like, say, the negative of these techniques and how they're, you know, like manipulative techniques, if you will, doesn't mean you're going to use them. If you're wise enough, you know how to shield yourself and shield others from them. Yes. You know, it's yes. like you can't just not learn the dark arts of magic if you're like if you're going to go fussing around with magic. Chances are, if you go fussing around with that kind of stuff, you're going to end up if you don't know what it is, messing with it. No, talking you and know? using rhetoric was something that was magical when it was invented. Just like the first symbol, the well, first sigil, the first magical yeah, symbol was was seen as a spell. And when we started linking those things together, we called it spelling. And you got to know both ends. You got to truly learn so both ends is of the coin. A yeah. very active magic. And it's rhetoric's very not good or bad. Way of it's... manipulating people and causing yeah. them to think things and control them. Well, you can do it for beneficially and, and use rhetoric to tell the truth and only the truth. Mm -hmm. But you can also use it for you, like you know, it, it's a tool. It's a psychotechnology. Yeah. It's literally a tool. It's a and tool that's been misused a great deal. Because we I don't have any self-respect. We don't have any transcendent sense of love and, and yeah. caring for one another. And caring for ourselves, let alone anyone else. Like truly to know thyself so that you can be a better person and be good in the world. I and think there's a spread more good. Is people really want what Socrates want found to be the meaning of life. And a lot of people, they don't have that. So they're hoarding mass amounts they're incredibly greedy and power hungry. Once they've got more money than they know what to do with, now they're wrestling for more and more power. And these people will and do ongoing utilize divide and conquer methodologies to divide people, turn them against one another, keep them fragmented so that they can continue to reap the spoils and have more and more control and power. Well, and what that's, if, what if, like, what the reason why they hoard and consume and you know i'm using the vague Man, they live through the eyes of fear right well i think they are trying to fill themselves with something that only you know the together the philosophy can fill that's right they got a god-shaped hole so they're, they're yeah they're trying to yeah <laughs> they got a love-shaped hole yeah they got you know? a love-shaped hole god is and love. god is love <laughs> yeah. yeah well right. yeah and it's just like you know eating bad food you just keep eating it and eating it and eating it artificial filler that yeah. never quite Fulfills that makes it kind of pity those who have. Yeah. Are That's why we feel so meaningless. We're eating all this junk food and everything, going through COVID and being well, cut off from one another and human interaction and familial interaction and friends. And if you ever want, if struggle with how how can you have just unconditional love for somebody like you know the top level, I'm not going to name any names, but the top level billionaires and controllers of the world that we think sure. from the bottom are so evil. How do you have compassion for them? Well, one way is they've got that hole that they cannot fill. That's that how you I can saw more with easily Dick fill. Cheney and George Bush during the Iraq War. I was like, how? How can you? How we get past this point yeah, where can, we're so you know, divided and yeah. like we caused so much damage to the world? And I knew that war was wrong, and I was very upset about it. And I remember thinking one night, like, how could I possibly? Like, cause I remember reading some something 
um, you know, love love all beings, you know. It's like, yeah, but how do you do that when they're destroying, you know? And they're like, how do you do, how do you love people like George Bush and Dick Cheney? (laughs) Or even the psychotic, they live in fear. They're hoarding. They can't ever get a sense of contentment that lasts. They don't understand a a deep sense of peace or they're they're definitely not lit up by the little things as much anymore if they continue having to need more and more and more well don't don't stop at pity either because a lot of people aggrandizement yeah a lot of people will stop at pity and be like well then i pity these rich elites or whatever no 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 like you want to love them and be very disappointed human beings (laughs) that are utilizing another method of survival um, but I believe it's de-evolutionary. I think it's sure, backwards. Yeah, well, it's counter to the direction that we've been going. Well, where we're at right now and on this episode, and it's quite a, sophist. Yeah, it's I dangerous. Think Socrates to probably the saw this. Like this is way before the theory of evolution, but essentially as de-evolutionary. He's like, well, how do we make this evolutionary? How do we yeah. use this tool of rhetoric to evolve ourselves instead of de-evolve ourselves? Uh, yeah. And now we're at like hyper rhetoric with. You know, we've got memes, we've got videos, we've got video games, all sorts of things that are just like rhetoric, uh, you know, to the 10th millionth power or whatever, just like maximized. Like, what do we call that now? It's the same thing as the sophist, but it's just more now. Well, now we have like giant PR companies that, you know, they're the, the biggest ones, like not only do they design very convincing, like shampoo or toothpaste commercials, but they design presidential campaigns. Uh, yeah. and they and pack ads systems and all that. Yeah. of, uh, consent management and, yeah. um, even idea management and even how you design what your website looks like and it's usability to manipulate people to move. Sure. The store shelves and the grocery stores like the candy eye level for the children and all that. become very sophisticated with our bullshit. (laughs) Constantly (laughs) using different ways of making this thing salient to you. Just walk down the street and look at all the signs when you go into the commercial district and you'll see all the things that are fighting over your attention that are trying to be the most salient. Yeah, but okay. So grocery store people, I'm speaking straight to you. If every (laughs) sticker has like a sale price or a bargain price on it and everything like that. And the whole show, it's just nothing but those stickers. It doesn't mean anything. No. So no. you got to put some regular stickers and then I'll notice that little like red one or the little yellow one or whatever. But when they're all just yellow stickers that are like, you know, this sale and two for this and that or the other, I'm like, uh, something went wrong here. But yeah, um, this was an awesome episode though. Um, and getting into, was. you know, getting into the, the Grecian greats is, you know, I find that period it's of time fascinating because like there's yeah. a lot of romance behind, you know, romantic ideas behind it because of like what I've grown up with in media and other stuff like that. But then there's the, the actual reality of it, like. But then there's there's an odd relatableness because that period of time was a very heavy shifting period of time in a centralized place in the world that had mm-hmm. a definite this was the center and these are the places I don't know about but then I know about kingdoms over like because like Greek stories have about kingdoms far the far off kingdoms mm-hmm. and we have the knowledge now we're going to be like oh that far off kingdom let's look through his knowledge there and then you can start piecing everything together and it's yeah I'm looking for that picture again ah they no. can't see me doing it now though I put us on the big screen I finally remembered to do that we're on the big screen now well thank you for tuning in guys up that was a really cool episode. Yeah, so- Socrates finds this meaning so important that he's willing to die for it. Yeah. Socrates, the shaman. 
trying to keep us in the continuous cosmos connection as we became more and more rational. And now we do have the opportunity to marry the two, but it's taken us another, you know, thousands of years of conflict and resolution to get to this point. Yeah. Oh, and now we're now we're at the cusp. You know, it's crazy because we have so many different we're ways. We're li- literally of collapsing living civilization. In the most interesting time ever. Everything is becoming increasingly salient at an increasingly rapid rate. Soon AI is going to be writing music and, and stories. And AI is going to be asking these questions movies, too. And, and then we're going to have to see what the AI comes oh, up geez, with. Oh, yeah. Those things actually become truly well, self-aware. I hope they get in on these conversations and start, you know, like, you know, I want AIs that, like, you know, read philosophy and go through this stuff too. You know, I like, like the idea of the AIs <laughs> instantly absorbing all of our knowledge and history yeah, and wisdom yeah, at once yeah. and then just becoming like yeah, Bodhisattva yeah. and being like, okay, you guys need to stop fighting I don't each like other. the T2 uh, the Terminator I'm end of help, that. Yeah. I want the I want the you know the benevolent cool AIs not yeah, the, the yeah. other end um, so if you like the music that was uh, greater than one band.com I'm sure link will, or Chris will get it up in the link the link section whenever this comes um, there's uh, wave formats and also mp3s you can buy them if you want to give us money or you can download them for free it's about getting a good product out there. Um, me, good buddy TV Dave, a bunch of other musicians locally came together. Greaterthanoneband.com. Yep, and that uh, little art piece is a sigil I drew up, and then we had a uh, wonderful graphic artist who, if you check out the website, you'll get to see who she is. Um, make it in color, you know. So. There's a spell in there, and it's really about making humanity greater than one. Yes, that's how we operate at our best. This is the way. I love it. So, yeah, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Yes. Uh, Yeah, American Dharma. We also have a couple shows coming up. We have October, help me out, 7th. October 7th. Then we have October 22nd. 22nd. So October seventh is going to be. Whoops, I'm trying to. Uh, that's at Southwest in Baltimore. Yeah, Baltimore, Maryland. And then we have. Where is my calendar? October twenty second is going to be at Love Drafts for a fall festival event. And Love Drafts is up in PA, right? That is up in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Yes. And then coming up, November. I think it's fourth. November fourth, we got our show. With demise and demise. saliva, <laughs> uh, which is like a good time band. That's really exciting. That's awesome. I, I love their cover of Michael Jackson's "They Don't Really Care About Us." It's actually pretty, it's actually, pretty good. It's their pretty singer, good. The, the, yeah. the singer, did a great job. For real, capturing Michael Jackson's angry voice, which is a voice and one of power. Dude, he was amazing. He was so amazing. There's an inspiration. Well, on that note, guys, be inspiring, stay inspiring. Love yourselves. Love others all around the world. And even if you if you don't know how to, find a way. There's ways. There's ways. You can do you know, there's there's beautiful forms of various rituals and prayers out there. You find something that suits you. Um, but 
us developing wisdom together is nothing but a good thing. We can use our collective sense-making capacities, our collective wisdom. Talk with people about how to love. To figure out how to solve the greatest problems that face us as a species. Well, just look. Hey, talking about it goes a long way. So find. Yeah, we gotta we gotta get sophisticated with it. We gotta pick up where the hippies left left off. Get past the naive love and get into real like 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 Martin Luther King said, not that superficial bosh, but that love that all the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. God is love. Profoundly and deeply. So yeah, we love you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. Look forward to next week, 8 o'clock on Wednesday night. We're going to be back 8 p.m. EST, Actually Live. We'll be going into episode 6 of Awakening to the Meaning Crisis. With, I'm sorry, episode 5. Mm-hmm. Uh, Play-Doh in the Cave. Ooh. And that's going to be awesome. It's going to start getting deep. Because we're, yeah, we're still in the beginning here. Just I wait. know. It's really, it's, it's starting so to pick up some deep. steam, though, man. Yeah. It's, you, can, you can feel the You can, you feel can hear what he's doing. Yeah, he's yeah. telling the story of humanity, and you start feeling yourself. He's a, he's like, a good storyteller. This is how I work, and this is how we work. And he tells a really good story. He does. Man. Yeah, the yeah. fact that he's linked all this together, as he has, too, is, is an amazing undertaking. He's helping us see where we're at right now and why, how, why we're here, how we got here, and perhaps even how we can get out together. Yeah. So we will surf the apocalypse yes, as we thread the eye of the needle. We will you surf this, this ever-growing tidal wave with our ever-capable surfboarding technique. And go find the others, the others that are all of us. And once we find all of them, there will be no others. It'll just be us. Dig it. Yeah. Yes. All right, guys. We will see you next time. Peace. Peace. Love you.